everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. In this week's episode, the crew can't help but indulge in their most recent foot fetish. That's right, more discussion of flat-footed versus high-arched hooves with Dr. Mike Martino. Mike brings up some interesting and rather controversial points on the end of Olympic lifting in sport weight rooms and the overhead squat being his most prized lift. Of course, we can't help but push back a little bit on that logic, and his reasoning is rather surprising. This is one you'll want to watch on our YouTube channel because Old Tex kicks off his ladies' boat shoes to model some of the doctor's diagnostics. Some images may not be suitable for children. Here it is, episode 389. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you doing today? This is Luke. This is John. And Tex. And we are... Voltron, <laughs> right? No, no they're, they're five lines of Captain Voltron. Captain Planet. When well, our actually, powers combine. No, they're the five paladins of Voltron. Mm. So are we three paladins of Power Athlete? Yes. Oh, we I like are that. Now? We've always said that. <laughs> uh, you guys haven't watched as much Voltron as no, I have. So I was you a Transformers are correct. Guy. We watched uh, eight seasons of Voltron with about 20 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, every day, my son would be like, hey, Dada, you want to watch, or Daddy, you want to watch Voltron? I'm like, yes. Let's watch Voltron. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we watch a lot of Voltron. I, when I growing up, I was a uh, Thundercats guy. So what, uh, John? What age were you when Voltron was hip? Uh, I was probably right around like maybe seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. And I mm-hmm. remember the cartoon. Um, then what they did is Netflix bought the rights and mm. completely went off the rails because I think there was only like one season of Voltron. What they did is they went back with like the original artwork and did this like incredible thing that turned into eight seasons because i remember the kids like in the beginning i'm like oh i kind of remember this and then as we got into it um the kids were asking me questions i'm like i have no idea (laughs) i don't even know what like this isn't this is so far off the script then i had to go to the google box and look it up and they completely did like the Mm -hmm. original Mm -hmm. script but they rewrote everything uh and just created this epic thing so it's on netflix it's like eight seasons it'll probably it's a lot of episodes man but that's what we had COVID for voltron Mm. Well, was, there you have it. The yeah, I was Ninja Turtles in that age. Oh, yeah. Good point. I was that, too. But uh, you are listening to the Voltron. I guess it were more of the Ninja Turtles of Strength and Conditioning podcast. Because that sucker is still going. Or maybe, Sim- no, Simpsons? Um, Simpsons did it. Uh, yeah, we're uh, I'll tell you what you're definitely listening to. The premier podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing. I-N-G. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a epic episode for you today with dr mike martino we have text gets up on the table and does like a little table dance for us you're not going to be able to see it obviously oh, if you're just man, listening been throwing ones at him the whole time i know well i was <laughs> stuffing ones in his uh tzatziki thong belt. his belt uh, but his thong song dong 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 but as you get in there and as you are frustrated because you're gonna want to know what the heck we're talking about understand it's on youtube you're gonna have to go to youtube to see it and what was I saying? We're the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. And we deserve your feedback. Would you agree, gentlemen? That means... I think we do. You need to open up your little iTunes app or whatever you're listening on, and you need to tap on five stars or four or three. But really, let, let, come on, let's be honest. Five stars and leave us a review. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, we're steadily climbing the charts on iTunes, and we're coming after you, Ben Greenfield. (laughs) I don't know why I like going after him. But we are. We're gonna, because we're looking to get in that top 10, 
top five and number one podcast, and we can't do it without you. And that starts with some reviews. That starts with you sharing some episodes, maybe some YouTube clips. That means get involved, people. Text, we got any good reviews we want to read? Yes. Have you read this yet? Yes, I have. Okay. This is from, let's just call him John. Not this John, different John. Oh, John W? No, no, no. J. Wellwood? Johan. John gave us five stars with a title of this review being Bromance and the Atlas Stone. Ooh. I've been following and listening to John, Luke, Tex, and Callie since the beginning. If you like learning how to train and move properly so that you can perform and feel your best on the field or in your everyday life, these guys cover it. Unlike many of the fitness podcasts, this crew is well-respected and mm. connected with the strength and conditioning field. Yeah. They weave all of this info within natural camaraderie they have with each other as they crack jokes, quote movies, and BS with each other. The combination of the great info and banter makes you want to hang out, bang some weights, run some sprints, and have a good time with your old friends. Enjoy. What a great review. Would you agree, comrades? Can we say that? Harumph, harumph, harumph. <laughs> Let me get a harumph out of that. Guy. Peas and carrots. So that could be you, ladies and gentlemen. You could let us know how fantastic this is and the rest of the world. Um, and if you, get, if you get a lot out of this podcast, give a little bit, share it with your friends. And uh, we appreciate you. We love our listeners. We love you. And if there's an episode that you enjoy in particular, share it. We also have this new feature on the YouTube in which we have clips mm-hmm. making this more digestible. Mm-hmm for users that have never listened to the show before. That's right. So enough about us, enough about this podcast, because we are just going to keep adding to the credibility, continuing to fill your cup and give you just unadulterated training info. We're, with doc- we're talking to Dr. Mike Martino today. He's an instructor over at Georgia College, and we got introduced to him through uh, Dr. Emily Splitchell. Uh-huh. Which I'm surprised we haven't crossed paths with this guy. Yeah, because it like, is like... It's like a kindred spirit. Summer Strong speaker at one yeah. point. No, I, I, uh, well, except for putting the overhead squad on a pedestal. I understand. Uh, I understand his reasoning. I get uh, it. I wasn't going to try to fight him on it because mm-hmm. um, he has a reason, but uh, I don't agree with him on it that. De- and I would say it depends on the coach. Yeah, if yeah. you have a coach who can pull it off, then I don't think you need that safety net. But I understand how that becomes... You'll have to listen, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, I'm not mad at it. I just think if it were me, I wouldn't do it that way. But that's why we have different people and different, different strokes for different folks and you know, different flavors mm-hmm. of ice cream because not everybody's a vanilla guy. Some people like chocolate. Some people like strawberry. Some people like uh, rum raisin like Tex. You like rum raisin? Rumpelstiltskin? I got, a st- I got a hot take, boys. I hate mint chocolate chip. I love mint chocolate chip. It's my mint, number one. Uh, mint no, chocolate chip. out. Uh, How? What? Out. No way, dude. I would... Uh, I bought Ashley mint chocolate chip ice cream for her birthday. <laughs> That's what I ended up getting her. Oh, chocolate. Kind of ice cream. Uh, and I like... I, j- I just didn't want to do it. I'm a salted caramel guy. Ah, you're such a hipster. What? Is that hip? That, Is that a hipster dude. thing? Let me Caramel. tell you, mint, sweet and savory. Mint chocolate chip goes back to like forever. It was probably the second thing that was invented. Probably or thought, right. Vanilla chocolate, mint chocolate chip. Mm-hmm. Like those were when it was vanilla. Uh, salty caramel. That's just within the yeah. last like six or seven years. Mint chocolate chip is the square stone wheel of the Flintstones to ice cream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like you, the first. It's just because it was the first doesn't mean it was the best. You are a disgusting hipster. I. 
Damn, uh, damn you, John Wellborn. <laughs> right? I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, I know your daughter's birthday's coming up. Uh-huh. So I might just have to come kidnap her because I don't know if I can have her being raised by somebody that doesn't like mint mm-hmm. chocolate chip. Well, she's not allowed to have ice cream. <laughs> not until she's 18. <laughs> <laughs> Is well, that going to work? Thank, thank God she's got Packy there to be like, oh, yeah, here's the vanilla. I know. I know. Well, okay, let's get down to strength and conditioning. Anything you need to add on uh, Mike's biotechs? Because he does dive into a little bit. Yeah, USA Swim. I mean, he's, he's been around forever. Working with a lot forever, of high forever. We never want anything, but I now know. we can't. Yes, yeah, been in strength and conditioning for over thirty years, mm-hmm. and very grateful. And he he speaks to his mentors highly. And he was a collegiate swimmer. He himself worked with USA national team, USA team from nineteen ninety to two thousand. So mm-hmm. covering a lot of Olympics there. So peaked with performance, and now educates at Georgia College as the professor in school and health and human performance with a lot of cool classes. It's a shame like. COVID's He's not go- closer. <laughs> I was like Shane, listening to it. I was like, if, man, I would totally If I had him as a professor, professor, uh, that would have been amazing. Did you say an oppressor? As professor. a professor. Oh, I thought you said if I ever had him as an oppressor. Are you speaking about being oppressed? You just hear too slow. Uh, you know, you got to hear fast like me and text do. Ah, dynamic. <laughs> right. Dynamic hearing. But he says they're going back to in-person yeah. class, and I understand how important that is yep. in this profession. So I'm glad all of his students are our future leaders in the strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm industry i could you imagine if that was like required learning in in, uh, junior high like you had to like take these types of classes in junior high high school and college because you get to learn the the actual application of this type of training instead of doing pe stick and ball stuff Mm. anywho anywho besides point what we can say can do this episode no justice you're gonna have to just be the fly on the wall and enjoy should we do it sounds good go let's go I'm excited to get to know you. We're happy to have you on the show, and uh, welcome to Power Athlete Radio. And and Dr. Emily, she made our introduction, and she had nothing but nice th- nice things to say, and recommended we got to get you on. So okay. I don't, we're going to explore a lot of topics, I imagine. And for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, a quick intro, and then we'll we'll play off it and dive into some research, some education, and see see where we go. Okay. I'm Dr. Mike Martino. I'm a full professor at Georgia College. I've been there for 23 years. Um, I was a U.S. national team coach for the Olympic team in 92 and 96 for swimming. Uh, Pretty much was involved with competitive swimming from when I was six years old and then was a, you know, pretty high level top 200 um, swimmer and then coached Olympic athletes. And then that's how I kind of got into the human performance stuff. And then, and then I also own four different businesses. Cone, I've got two health clubs, uh, Bodyplex Milledgeville and Bodyplex Grayson. And then we have two CrossFits also. Oh, maybe four gyms. Yes, sir. So what's, what's the, uh, tell us a little bit about the difference between the Bodyplex and the CrossFit. Like, is it uh, more of like the globo machine style versus the garage gym or what's up i'd say it's for the globo you know it's kind of the the club in milledgeville is 30 38,000 square feet and about eight thousand of that we have the crossfit in which is in the back so we have got garage doors and everything and i would say we're a very different crossfit um very focused on movement quality a lot of correctives um you know perfecting the actual technique and then we have another CrossFit up in Grayson, which is also associated. Can you really call it CrossFit then? Can you really call it CrossFit? 
Probably not, but you know, <laughs> you got you got you got to think about it from the perspective of, um, you know, one thing that you can't knock CrossFit for is for social facilitation. Um, you know, the people you could say what people could say whatever they want, they can rip it if they want, but from the social facilitation perspective, and you know. I was resistant at first, but my business partner was like, look, we've got this extra space. This really could be a good thing. And it's, and it's a different part of demographic, you know, in the marketplace that we could attract. And, you know, one thing I've learned about being in business for the last 12 years, um, you know, combined revenue between the four businesses, you know, three, three, three and a half million dollars. So it's no joke. Mm -hmm. So, the thing is, is that you've got to have multiple revenue streams. Um, and that's really what lets you, you know, kind of stay where you are within this marketplace, especially in light of the pandemic, which now is not a pandemic, but you know, with the coronavirus. So you, it was a good decision when my business partner had said that I was, you know, resistant, but it was a good decision. Now We're, we make mo money on both CrossFit. So call it whatever you want to call it, but we, yeah, we a, focus on that. We made a lot of money convincing people that uh, if you could translate smart strength in, in conditioning into CrossFit lingo, you could basically sell them on uh, strength training with a little bit of metabolic conditioning, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is what uh, pretty much every football player and swimmer and every high-level professional athlete has done their entire life. So yeah. I, uh, just history, I played in the NFL, and I remember when I uh, was approached by CrossFit, I looked at it and I knew what they were doing because uh, I had, had a coach named Todd Rice and we did a ton of metabolic conditioning work. I mean, we Olympic lifted, we snatched clean and jerk, and then we would do these short little metabolic conditioning workouts, sprint, change of direction. And I was yeah. like, oh, I've seen this before. You guys are just not doing it from a, you know, a periodized template. So uh, I just dropped this periodized strength template into it and kind of you know, looked at different yeah. movements, planes of motion, vertical, horizontal pulling, pushing and pulling, yep. step squat and lunge, peel different axis rotations. Peel back some volume, increase intensity in terms of load. Like, Yeah, I mean, you don't have to go 21-15-9, but you can do like a 12-9-6-3 yeah. with a heavier weight. And, yeah, and the uh, other, people, and, and, you know, their minds imploded. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And you can add the periodization side to it, but the only problem is where's the assessment? And the assessment's probably the most important thing. Right, right. That, that's what I see what's wrong with most professional athletes today is, is, um, you know, that we're, we're talking about multi-million dollar machines, but they wear a 200, $250 pair of cleats. I mean, you take an Indianapolis 500 race car and that thing's tires are, you know, grand, two grand a piece. They're specialized. So the shoes should literally be specialized, you know, to each individual athlete. And I've looked at quite a few professional athletes, you know, feet. And um, and then that was what intrigued me, you know, in the beginning when I first got certified under Emily. Uh, and then I just took it a little bit further and then just went in, you know, deeper and deeper because the shoes suck for all the sports. I completely agree with you on that. How, how do like how is that like a technology problem still? I mean, that seems like there's a technology solution to that equipment problem and how is that not, I don't like more widely yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's technology I think it's knowledge I don't think it's technology we could do anything Ooh. with technology right now it's knowledge they just well, lack the knowledge uh doc I, there's an implied hyphen between tech and then knowledge e get it it's like a play on words text like no? k k n o <laughs> was this a, a pun 
It's something like that. <laughs> well, I mean, in retrospect, it was, but <laughs> well, not I mean, originally. Uh, so, I mean, I'm obviously the largest producer right now for cleats is what, Nike. I mean, they, they have the NFL deal. So, uh, you know, Reebok, um, I, I was a Nike athlete when I played in the NFL. Uh, I wouldn't wear the Reebok shoes because uh, it felt like I was walking on nails. They were rigid, uh, the Nikes. And what was cool in the NFL is actually they would give us half sizes and they would adjust. So I, I wore like, I always wore 14s, but in those Nikes I wore 13 and a half, but I had a wider one. And they made the toe box a little wider so they could make adjustments. And they would make me like 10 pairs of cleats and I would, you know, rotate them and add practice cleats and the whole deal. But it, there were, really was no science. I mean, I just have a, a high arch and their only opportunity for that was, hey, you need orthotics. And I don't like orthotics. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a lot more mobility stuff if you've got, you know, a high arch. If you've got a rigid foot, then you definitely need to do some more of the mobility stuff. But, you know, obviously the majority of athletes, um, especially if they're, you know, African-American athletes, they're going to be flat-footed. The fastest runners are flat-footed. Why is that? I mean, is they it They can that- unlock their foot. I always thought that the arch acted like a spring. If you look at the, you know, like the mechanics of the foot, it should be yeah. as it comes in, it comes like this and should higher arch should result in a faster athlete yeah but the higher arch what happens is it becomes rigid so then the foot does not have the same mobility that you know flat foot now there's a problem with that when you're flat footed you're going to evert the subtalar joint and then you're going to pronate the foot now you're going to have tibial internal rotation so you're going to have more pressure on the actual knee joint in the acl so if we go back and look at todd Gurley and look at his injury what happened you know, it's quite interesting because they built him up and even said, you know, he was bigger, stronger. And this isn't in the pros. This was when he was at Georgia. And then he had a non-contact injury. So really what happened was his ankle was never the way that it should have been. And so he, his foot mechanics were poor. And that's what led to it. And think, you make that engine bigger, bigger, and bigger. And you can generate more force. And now you're going all the way down to this small base, which is the foot the tripod and it's just not set up for it and when did your focus and attention get to the foot you have a, a vast experience in the strength and conditioning field and with swimming but when did you start to dial in and realize the importance down below yeah well i think it was always of interest to me because i had braces when i was a infant kind of like forrest gump so, you know, I was flat footed. So, and I'm still flat footed to an extent, but I've improved it since doing some of the short foot and some of the other exercises. And then I studied martial arts for probably about 15 years, a combination of um, Ishinru karate and then uh, BJJ and MMA. So, you know, everything there is barefoot, right? So you do it all barefoot. So you never realize it. Now, when I watch UFC fights, I'm watching the guy's feet because I'm kind of looking and seeing and, and, and then say, okay, hey, what's going to happen here? You know, and it's interesting to see what happens from a mechanics perspective when that subtalar joint everts and then they pronate. So, you know, next time you watch a fight, watch it and see what happens. And you'll kind of see and sometimes you'll even see when they throw like a low kick or a high kick. And then all of a sudden they kind of limp on the side that they were their plant leg. And it could be because they're generating so much velocity and the engine has gotten so big that you know, the knee joint just can't handle it because it's stuck in between the ankle and the hip. So So are you guys familiar with the joint by joint approach? Break it down. I was going to say, if you don't mind breaking it down and then also for maybe some of our listeners or maybe one of the co-hosts in the room, uh, can you 
describe the the eversion and pronation that you're talking about so sure. when i do watch the fight i can kind of look for it i mean yeah they, they... absolutely yeah um so you know when we were talking about earlier like if you have a higher arch that foot tripod so mm-hmm. you would think it'd act like a spring right and it can absorb but what happens is it's actually rigid so the foot can't unlock as much so it does act like a spring but it really doesn't allow you the same great range of motion that you are when you're flat-footed. Now, the problem with that is, it's just like, think about hypermobility and hypomobility. If someone, most sprinters are hypomobile, right? They're really stiff. So they can store a lot of energy in their connective tissue. So when we think about it from that perspective, they can store a lot of potential energy. Now, the problem is, is they don't have quite the same mobility. Then when someone's hypermobile, they have greater range of motion. So let's look at it from that perspective. Let's kind of say as an ana- analogous to hypermobility and flat foot. Doesn't mean you're hypermobile in your body, but your foot is hypermobile. So you get greater range of motion, you can store more energy. When you look at it, and if we did a study and we looked at NFL players or NBA players and we looked at Achilles tendon tears, I'd be willing to wager money that 70% or more are flat-footed individuals. So when you evert, that's the subtalar joint. I don't have my foot model here. So, but if you look, when that subtalar joint everts, then the whole foot pronates. You know, a lot of people use those terms synonymously, but they're not. So that subtalar joint is going to evert, so collapse, and then the foot, the whole foot's going to actually pronate. Right. So, I mean, we can get one of you guys to take your shoes off, jump up on the table, and we'll take a look at your foot and do a quick foot analysis so you can see it. Here comes comes Frodo. (laughs) Well, seeing as you're the only person in the room that can stand on the table without smashing their head. (laughs) There's no way. All right, go ahead. Step up there. Well, my headphones. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. All right. So what I need you to do. First off is turn sideways so I can see a side view of your foot. Yes, just like that. Good. Now, just put your weight on that. So you can see that he has a neutral arch, right? So the viewers can see that. You can see that he's got a slight arch. It's not rigid. So now if if he had an actual flat foot, what you would see is it would cave, right? So his his subtalar joint, there you go. And then notice, go back to neutral, go back to neutral. Guys, watch his knee. Look right at his knee, at right below his patella. Uh, his patella. So then look, and now go ahead and evert again, and pronate that foot. Look at how his knee and his tibia actually internally rotates. Yeah. So now what happens is you end up like this, and you have a torque pressure here that's actually caused from the foot. So guess what's being stretched right there? Hey, Doc, the ACL. Uh, have you ever watched much offensive line play in the NFL? Yes. Uh, this is, um, so, uh, they teach that position, uh, as uh, like a part of the technique that, that like they take and, uh, you know, drive the knee in real hard and actually try to teach people to play kind of duck, they call it duck footed where your, yeah. your toe is out and then they have you collapse your knee in. And, um, 
I fought against that my entire NFL career because I was always told them, I'm like, dude, you're putting these guys in a bad position. I can't yep. generate force here. So yep. a vertical foot, big toe on the ground, knee tracking slightly over your instep where I can actually get my glute engaged. And I, I would watch guys in this position, uh, you know, but the problem is they're 350 pounds, so yep. they could accept, uh, absorb a bull rush. But uh, just mechanics-wise and from a pain standpoint and just everything, like – to teach this position, like I would pull my hair out when I'd see people do it. And I was like, man, this is going to go upstream everything from your hips to your knees to your low back. And you're going to have so many problems. And it's shitty position. But they still teach this position in high school and college and the NFL. And I, and I used to get on these offensive line coaches and I'd be like, hey, I realize you're our coach, but you never played this fucking game. And this is terrible position, and what you're doing is you're just teaching something that you heard from Howard Mudd in this clinic film, and it's fucking bullshit. Yeah. Play the game. Well, uh yeah, let's break that down. So let's break it down biomechanically, right? Because most that's the problem with research is it takes longer. And, and what happens is the anecdotal findings and whoever is the loudest voice, right, or has the biggest name is the one that's usually listened to. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's that's back ass words, right? I mean, you just that doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, why, why, we see it on the internet. The guy with the most uh, posts on the forum yes. tends to be the greatest expert, or the person with the most followers yep. tends to know the most, and 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 really doesn't. So let's go back to that because that's an excellent point. So if you were to go what we call and and Emily probably mentioned this low gear. So what I want you to do is actually externally rotate your foot right now. No, I mean literally nope, externally their whole foot. Yeah. Go. Now that's where you go. Now kind of lean forward and let the knee nope. drop in. Yeah, no, don't, don't push your knee forward. Collapse it in. Like go this way. Yes, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So now what happens is think about the base of support. Yeah. So because his foot is in a, what we call a low gear position, he does have a greater base of support, but his knee is stuck in the middle. Yeah. Right? So anecdotally, you would think, hey, you're going to get greater you know, position there. But now what you're doing is you're making the connective tissue absorb the actual forces and they can only absorb so much force. You know, when, a, when an opponent that's just as strong or stronger than you, because most offensive linemen are huge, right? I mean, they say they weigh 320, 330, but they're weighing 360, 380, 400. And they're so big. But then when someone else hits you that's going faster and that force is now applied there. So from a biomechanical position, you may have a greater support, but the problem is the connective tissue can't withstand it. So you should be in the high gear position, which is what you were saying. Yeah, Doc, Doc, I, just real quick for uh, the listeners, uh, this probably makes no sense if you're driving in your car, going to get your minivan washed. We are filming this, so keep an eye on Power Athlete YouTube, yeah. and uh, this clip will be up there. Doc, I, I, I was a smaller athletic guy, so at about 306, 310 pounds, I played a guard and tackle and was considered a smaller, more athletic uh, offensive lineman. And I used to regularly go up against guys who were 350, 360 pounds. And what was pretty interesting is uh, I figured out pretty quick just mechanically how I was stronger to be able to, you know, not only stop force but apply force and be able to hit. And uh, almost like figuring out like a race car, you know, where the lug nuts are loose by yep. uh, going against people every day. And uh, I remember telling the coach, I'm like, if I do that technique, not only am I going to get hurt, but I'm going to fucking lose terribly. And, um, and so I ended up figuring out an efficient way to play, which is why we coach so hard with the toes forward, you know, athletic position, knee over the instep, focusing on getting that big toe, because they actually teach guys to lift their toes to play on their midstep and their heel. And I'm like, I can't get my glute engaged. And then yep. rotating the knee in to try to, like, get my heel a little bit out so I can get torque. Um, yep. All of these things, you know, like loading the connective tissues, 
you know, coming off playing low, coming off with a flat. I mean, all of this stuff was uh, developed within a technique on actually this allowed me to be uh, successful versus guys that were 40, 50 pounds bigger than me. Uh, but I think the problem is, is that the guys uh, in the NFL, it's become this, uh, you know, genetic pool of freaks that, you know, when you're 400 pounds, 380 pounds, and you got a, you know, seven foot wingspan, you're six, seven, it doesn't really matter what you do. You just got to get in somebody's fucking way long enough for four or five seconds. Yeah. And so the sure. problem is they're coaching technique based off of this. And I remember being like, dude, this is, this is awful. And, yeah. You know, so no, I'm on the same page with that. That would definitely. So. Uh, what we're going to do something really quick since you were talking about engaging the glute. So um, what we're going to do is have you now face the camera, both feet face the camera. Yep. So now what I want you to do is bend your knees slightly. And then I want you to li- not that much. Yep. Now, usually we do short foot with one foot at a time. I want you to lift your toes up and spread your toes out, spread them out. Now what I want you to do is literally drive your first or your great toe into the actual table and kind of squeeze a little bit, but try not to squeeze too much with all your, just just your great toe, activate. That's short foot. What I want you to do is close your eyes. Do you feel that in your glutes? Yes. You yeah. said yes, ladies and gentlemen. Text, would you like me to feel your glutes to confirm? I don't know if I touch those things. Ooh, so, <laughs> so big, so luscious. Yeah. Okay, so now he can get off the table. But yes, that, that, that's short foot, and that will engage. So exactly what we were just talking about, that's right. If you're not pushing through the great toe. Now, what's interesting is we did a, a pilot study. Because, you know, a lot of times it, that's the difference between being a scientist and then also being a coach. Because I'm a coach, too. I still coach. Um, so we have a unique situation. We're a division two school. We don't have a head strength coach, but what we do is we integrate our masters of human performance for Georgia college and all of them actually help with the team. So when you come to our program, you have to get applied experience. There is no option. You can't just get a degree and not actually coach. So you, you actually get in there and you're hands on with our, one of our teams or multiple teams. So I still get up 5am, go coach the men's basketball team. And sometimes the women's basketball team, we don't want somebody to cover them and run their metabolic conditioning, run their weight training. So with that, what happens is a lot of times we'll do these drills in between our metabolic conditioning where we do a drop step. Well, with that drop step, it is amazing to watch. Most people will go into that low gear position. And that's how you want to test it because you want to see it reactive because then they don't have time to think about it. Then you have to practice thinking about it, right? Do it over and over again. Well, when Gary Schofield, who works up at Play now, used to be a Greater Atlanta Christian, we went up there and we actually did a research day for him, for his kids. And we probably had, I don't know, 80 kids up there. So I, what we did was we, we literally did two studies there, right? So pilot studies. So we, we did a vertical jump study where we, and we used a, a jump mat, which I'm not a big fan of, but we really tried to standardize to minimize some of the error, measurement error. We had them jump barefoot and, and shod, right? And there was a significant difference between shod and barefoot in, in the athletes. I actually did the T-test, did the statistics right on there. So we showed them everything, right? So it was, was kind of cool for them. But the cooler study was we went outside on the football field and went on the track. And we set up the laser timing. We put a gate at five and 10 yards. 
because I'm a big proponent of measuring the five-yard sprint time. Most people just go to 10. To me, five yards is more important than 10 even, and I'll explain. But what we did is we put them in that low gear position that we were talking about, externally rotating, right? So pushing like that, we let them start from there. Then we timed them at five and 10 yards, and they did multiple trials in each of those. And then we put them in the high gear position that we were just talking about, where your foot's straight, right? And you get through the great toe. At They were a tenth of a second slower in the low gear position than they were if they did the high gear position in the start. So imagine if you actually do what those NFL coaches were telling you and putting your foot and you had to actually take off. You're going to be a at least a tenth of a second slower. If you drop step, I think um, Deion Sanders called it something like in the combine. I, I think he called it a T-step, right? We call it low gear. And that T-step, when he would talk about it, you get stuck. So it's the same thing we just talked about. Now it's dynamic though, right? Eversion, pronation, internal uh, tibial internal rotation, more pressure on the knee, medial meniscus, medial collateral ligament, ACL. So now, but you're slower that way. So when you're slower and we saw it, so that would be a study we'd like to do, you know, with a large group and a higher end athlete to see and, and, and compare that low gear push off and that high gear push off. And I've got some high speed video too, that when I've done presentations on this, I show like a drop step and show a player naturally go and do that eversion and then into the low gear and then do it with a you know the high gear position and watch them and you could just see them get out of the hole that much faster it, it's kind of intriguing um it's just it's kind of nerdy because you know no one ever really goes that detailed down to the foot have you dug into let's say the like the short shuttle and foot position and how the like the dynamics of the foot on any of the 5105 stuff or lateral speed and agility no we haven't done any data collection on that but i think that would be the next step i think the first thing is we've got to do like a 510 and maybe a 20 you know um use laser timing it would be nice to have our force plates but it's just it's so difficult you know because of friction um, whenever we want to do any type of horizontal stuff off of a force plate, you have to have enough friction. That's the other thing that you need. In football and soccer, they have cleats. So, right, it's not the same as a shoe because now you have these extensions that are actually digging into the ground, and that pattern can actually affect it. So, see, I would say if you were an offensive lineman, you should have a wider shoe with bigger cleats because that would give you greater anchoring, right? It would give you greater friction. Now, you might not be able to move as fast, but it would give you that greater friction into the ground. Yeah, that's why I played in the molds. The molds uh, cleats were naturally wider, and actually the cleat, the molds went up on the sides, so you could kind of yeah. get you know better. Whereas uh, I used to say that the um, on occasion they used to make us wear uh, like you know the screw and spikes, and if you ever look at the bottom, it's really narrow, and it almost gets to the point where it feels like a nail is driving into the bottom yep. of the foot and where each spike is. So uh, I refused to wear them. I only wore the molds, and they ended up making us longer molds. 
So like if it was real, like shitty, we went and played in Green Bay yeah. where they didn't cut the grass on a, uh, you know, in December. Uh, it was like uh, they would give us these longer molds, but we had to get those because uh, I would never wear uh, the screw and spikes because even if you looked at the bottom, I mean, it, like let's say your foot's this wide, the bottom like print is like this big, mm-hmm. and uh, how it went. I remember thinking like, man, like this is uh, like my feet are going to hurt so bad from this. And I don't have uh, extremely wide feet, um, but I do like a wider shoe because I hate the feeling of my toes and everything getting squished yep. in. Um, so I like to be able to wiggle my toes and move them. And, like, I hate that feeling of being locked in. But, yeah, no, I, that's the reason I wore the molds. Yeah. Well, that, that's another good point. Let's look at that really quick. So let's think about force transmission, right? So if I take my finger and hit you or if I take my fist and hit you, there's greater surface area. So exactly what he was just saying is that, that narrower shoe is not better. It's not going to be better. A narrower shoe, a narrow shoe might be better if you have to change direction. But then again, if that narrow shoe is so narrow and it's rigid, so where it does not bend at all and allow the midfoot to come into play, then where does all the force go? To the great toe. And that's why you see great players like Julio Jones, who's had so many issues. He's so flat-footed and has turf toe so many times is because the shoes will not bend, right? So if – hold on. Dude, they are – and actually the insteps that they – or the insoles that they'll try to put in actually have metal in them or they have some form of like rigid plastic. So the the shoe is in what they think – uh, especially if you get turf toe, because I ended up with turf toe one time. They put a, a like a metal insole in where the fucking foot or the, the the shoe is completely locked, and you get no no push off. And I remember yeah. thinking like, I would much rather feel the pain of pushing than have this like feel like a club foot running around. Yeah, and and think about it for a second. Where if you put a steel shank right here, where's the shoe going to bend right, right here? Yeah. So where's all the force going to go to the great toe, turf toe? And then if you have a narrow, this is a pretty wide base, like toe box. But if it's really narrow, like a cleat, and you're you're actually smashing, right? You're, you're smashing the great toe like this, narrow it. So now it's not even mechanically doing the right thing. It's going to make you more prone to turf toe. Now, here's a good example. This, is, this shoe has no midsole. See how it bends? If I take a cleat and I bend it, it's not going to bend anywhere in the middle. It's going to bend right here. So where's all the force going to go? right here the design is just poor the, the shoes should have different levels and the, and they should have a different level of midsole flexibility to allow for the individual to use the midsole a little bit more in their foot is um uh it's like the foot i i guess like a i don't know what the term but like flat foot versus a high arch i don't know what the actual clinical pes term. cavus and pes planus Okay, pes clavis, pes planus. Um, is it genetic, or is it uh, a function of like early, I don't know, uh, like early uh, yeah, uh, nature exposure, versus nurture, yeah. right? Like early shoes yeah. or yeah. lots of carrying, right? Yeah, um, I would, you know, Doctor Emily be better on this one than I would be, I think. But I, I think it's going to be somewhat genetic, uh, and then there might be some environment too, right? I mean, I mean, you can have hypercholesterolemia. But if you exercise all the time, eat right, you probably can control it, right? You still might have slightly high cholesterol, but if your family all has over 400, but you have 220 or something like that, uh, it's probably the environment can still work. So I would, I'm never black and white where it's just genetic and it's just 
Yeah, we don't speak I, in absolutes either. So yeah, I think you can balance it, but I do think a, a larger portion of it is genetic. Well, with, uh, I played with a lot of Pacific Islanders, and uh, like any of the guys that were Tongan or Samoan or from any other island, I mean, their feet were like pancakes. <laughs> you know, they had these wide, like flat feet. I mean, uh, like when I was a kid, when I would walk in, like uh, you know, we were around the pool, it would look like my foot wasn't connected. You'd see because I had such a high arch as a kid. Yep. You know, you see the heel and you see this. Those guys, it was like uh, you'd think it was a bear paw. I remember we we were like yeah. going swimming, and I remember I got out of the pool and I saw the dude's foot, and it looked like a brick with these like five little dots. And I remember Sasquatch. thinking like like this like I would think this was a, a a bear if I saw this in in the wild. And um, I remember asking one of the dudes, I'm like, man, your feet are flat, and he's like, uh, everybody's feet are flat. I'm like, my feet aren't flat. He's like, you're not, a, you know, you're not uh, Polly was his comment. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he's like, uh, you know, and his thing was like, well, we don't wear shoes. Uh, so, our, you know, that's why our feet are flat. I'm like, well, I didn't wear shoes very much as a kid either growing up in Southern California. My arches are high. And yeah. so I, I've, um, I just noticed, uh, like, a lot of the black dudes, uh, their feet were super flat, but they used to wear the most painful looking shoes, as I thought is, like, maybe their way to kind of compensate for it. But I also noticed that the fastest guys tended to be flat-footed, but also slightly pigeon-toed and bow-legged. So that, uh, that idea of creating internal hip torque. So it was just a, a you know, interesting observation. If I saw a dude that was pigeon-toed, bow-legged, yep. uh, he was usually pretty fast. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a good point. I think from anecdotally from there, that's probably that population that you saw. That's probably why they were. I wouldn't say that I've probably seen so much from a bow-legged and a pigeon-toed um, because you know, sometimes they'll be stuck in that external rotation position. Um, and they'll have, uh, you know, that anterior, huge anterior pelvic tilt with huge glutes and, and they could jump through the roof. Um, you know, I've been working with basketball for 23 years and I've, I've coached hundreds, maybe probably thousands of athletes between some of the camps and some of the other stuff, but my actual athletes are doing it. It's interesting. My highest jumpers always are flat footed. Wow. And we do a, we do a really interesting test, which and it's kind of um, it, it, it's ironic because it, the NBA approach jump is what I call an absolute jump. So, and the reason why I, I call it an absolute jump is I want to know how jump can my how high can my athletes jump? Just period, right? And and what's funny is in the NBA they don't look at it that way. They use it as a vertical jump. So a lot of times you'll know when they do these jump, like they'll show them and say, "Oh, his vertical jump is this," where he runs up and then he jumps. And then they say his vertical jump is this. No, it's not. That's not your vertical jump. A counter movement jump is where you stand, counter move, and jump up, right? Where you don't take any steps because you carry horizontal velocity and transition it into vertical height. So Michael Jordan didn't have necessarily the best jump, but he was fast. So he could take that horizontal velocity and transfer it. A really interesting story is when I went to Cuba for the uh, Pan Am games uh, back in 93, I think, I, when I was driving from the airport <clears throat> on the bus, I sat next to Hollis Conway, who at the time was the American record holder for the high jump. He jumped like seven feet, eight inches or six inches. And at that time, Javier Sotomayor, which was the Cuban athlete, um, you know, had jumped, had the world record, almost eight feet or something crazy. Now, when I, right when I sat and I realized who it was, I introduced myself and he entered, I just started picking his brain, right? Because I was like, man, this guy's got to get some good stuff on jump stuff. 
And I was like, you know, he's got to have an incredible vertical jump. And then he said, you know what? He goes, I really, my vertical jump's good, but it's not great. Like you would think, I mean, the dude's jumping seven feet, six, eight inches. Yeah, you'd expect like a 50 inch standing bird. Absolutely. But the thing is, he said, I'm the fastest high jumper on the planet. He goes, I can run a 10, 100. Oh shit. So I was like, damn. Then that started making me think horizontal velocity into vertical height. So with that, that absolute jump test that we do, I just want to know how high you could jump. So our record at our school, I had a guy, Jeremy Mayweather, to jump to 145 and a half inches. So that's about, when you think about it, the goal was 120. He's 24 and a half inches above the rim. Yeah, it's 12-1. Yep. So he literally is running and jumping. But that wasn't my best athlete. My best athlete jumped 11-6 and a half, and he was only 6-1. So – what that does is the NBA approach jump, they say it's a vertical jump, right? They'll calculate it as a vertical. I want to know the absolute jump height. And then what I do is I take that absolute jump height and I use a counter movement jump, which is a vertical jump, and I subtract that too and we come up with a power index. If that number is nine or above, the difference between those two, they're an explosive athlete. They're an elite athlete. Wow. That's so, interesting. And make, I mean, yeah, yeah re- redirecting that velocity – you know, it would make sense. You'd probably want to, would a stiffer athlete be more effective at the absolute jump test? Well, when you think about it, sprinters, like if you've ever been around any world-class sprinters, um, you know, when I Uh, think about it, some of the best ones. Like like 100 and 200, because the sprinters that I've been around that were 100 and 200, like none of them could touch their toes. They That's were wound right. so tight, but then when you start That's getting exactly into right. like the four and the eight hundred meters, now all of a sudden those are yep. more like uh, like longer, more flexible athletes. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Just uh, my ex girlfriend was a four time All American uh, eight hundred meter runner at Cal, and uh, seeing her in comparison to like the people that ran the hundred and the two hundred, it's like completely yep. different body style. So yep. it was pretty oh, interesting yeah, for sure. And, and and they are now that gets all the way down to the cellular level, right? So when we go down and we look at the structural myofilaments like Titan and Nebulae, when we look at those two, we have to think about the actual structural myofilaments. So if they were stiffer, right, and you apply a lot of force to them, they're going to store more potential energy. If they're super mobile, like a hypermobile athlete they may get to the point where they go into too great of a range of motion. And then some of that actual energy is transferred somewhere else and given off as heat. Right. I I don't want to get too complicated, but when we think about the first law of thermodynamics, energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's just transferred. So if you're hypermobile, you're not going to store the same energy. If you're stiff and tout like these sprinters are, what happens is when you have an eccentric loading, you're, that's a lot of force, right? And then that force is stored for a split second. If you can keep that amortization phase ex- extremely short and then boom, go into the concentric, that's what you want. Uh, that's power. We had a funny observation. So, uh, you know, we worked as a, a SME for CrossFit. And, I, you know, these guys at the table, we traveled the world and taught hundreds of seminars over nine years. That's a CrossFit football seminar. And it was pretty interesting uh, going in and working with athletes and teaching them to squat and jump and change direction. Um, I constantly told people, stop stretching. 
Like, I love Kelly Starrett. We're good friends. But seriously, stop this stretching thing. You're so hypermobile. You're never going to be able to generate force. And more importantly, the positions that you're putting yourself in under load, you can't maintain stability in these bottom positions, and you're going to fucking hurt yourself. And well, I it agree was, with, like, I, unbelievable. Yeah, I agree 100% for a hypermobile person. But for someone who is rigid or stiff, they need to actually gain sure. mobility. But all these so athletes were already hypermobile. <laughs> you're right. You're right. So, I mean, when we think about that, you know, and, and this is gets us into a different rabbit hole, but when we think about Olympic weightlifting, when we think about the snatch and the clean and jerk. Now, isn't it ironic that the research and for 25 years, even longer than that, I've always been saying Olympic weightlifting. I remember going to a summer strong event with Bert Soren. And, and going there and literally they had a panel of speakers and I was up there and a good friend of mine, Josh Ortegan was on there too. And uh, I had gone to talk about the battling ropes and they were doing lit, uh, Olympic weightlifting like demonstrations. And, and they said, Bert asked a question to all the panelists. said, what's the most overrated exercise? And I said, Olympic weightlifting. <laughs> and I'm sitting next to a dude that's like, you know, 275 and was just doing like these, I mean, cause it is. Yeah. And now research shows that it is. It's the derivatives that actually work on explosiveness and power, not the clean and jerk, not the actual snatch. So now you're starting to see more of like, you know, a high shrug jump. One of our favorite lifts is a trap bar deadlift jump where I have them do a counter movement jump, like counter movement, and then boom, explode. And when we take that and we start to look at those types of derivative lifts and watch them on the force plates, you could start to see who the more explosive athletes are. Because if you're hypermobile, which you need to be if you're an Olympic weightlifter, because you've got to be able to get your ass to the ground. And most people can't do that. So what happens, because, right, you want to get as low as you can, because when you have a maximal load, you got to get beneath the weight. Because what we see when people do snatch, like in CrossFit, a lot of times, those are all power snatches. Yeah, they're, it's they're, not they're catching above snatch. parallel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, yep. just, and just because you catch it above parallel and ride it down to the bottom doesn't make it a full variance of the lift. What? Nope. So, no, what if I, it's I, with a medicine ball? I've been saying this for, <laughs> for years um, that uh, I think uh, I, I always thought Olympic weightlifting was a shitty way to develop uh, explosiveness and athleticism, but it's an incredible way to demonstrate it if you've already developed it. Yeah. And um, just because, uh, you know, people I, and I think early on there was this attitude that, like, if you want to develop athleticism and you want to be an athlete, you have to Olympic weightlift. And um, my comment was I played in the NFL. You know how many guys I saw actually uh, do a full variance of the lift? Like proficiently, Never. right? Yeah, well, like, uh, I, and I, I told him the story. I played with a guy named Boomer Grigsby, who was our fullback, who you probably never heard of. Uh, I watched him uh, do a really shitty reverse kind of power clean with cleats on after practice with 405 <laughs> with metal plates. And then he kind of push pressed it gingerly because he didn't want to slip. He was wearing molds on a wooden yeah. platform. He push pressed it overhead, put it down, uh, brought it back down, and set it down on the ground without falling. Was like, was that pretty good? I'm like, I, I just think he set the American record, yeah, uh, at the time. And um, <laughs> you know, like he, but he also had, uh, he was an over forty white dude, or I'm sorry, an, an over forty inch white dude with a, a vertical jump. Yeah. So uh, you know, he was a so I mean, big dude, and he was probably 235, 240 pounds at the time, six foot, so yeah. or maybe even a little less. So it's. Um, uh, and I used to get into arguments with these people all the time that somehow Olympic weightlifting is this panacea. It's the only way. And I'm like, dude, it's not. If it was, yeah. then uh, only people that Olympic weightlifted would get to go play professional sports. Yeah. Well, you know, if we could go back in time and we look 25, 30 years, 
and you you really go back and and i don't want to throw anybody under the bus so but if we would mention some of those names that swore by olympic weightlifting swore by it and now their own students who are their phd students have come along and shown through research that the derivatives are better than the olympic weightlifting movements so 25 years ago when you were you know going after people and you know saying yeah you're just wrong you're wrong you're wrong and everybody needs olympic weightlifting who was really wrong in the end I, I like it's just uh like i said um it's an incredible way to display you know all these things that you've developed in these traits and oh you they're see, incredible movements though they're incredible if, movements but if you see the guys that are really good at it they usually come from something else that allowed them to develop these in other ways. Like I, I haven't seen a guy in, in uh, just a classic example. Who's um, Chad? Uh, who's Chad Vaughn? Yeah, Let's Chad get... Vaughn. So we trained with Chad Vaughn out in uh, the Reebok deal. Uh, he has a club foot. I mean, he was born with a club foot and is like, dude, I started doing this because I couldn't do any other kind of movement change of direction sports. And he goes, I'm pretty good at pulling a bar vertically and getting under. But he's like, I can't change direction. I can't do any of the things that you would think you know that would yep. gauge athleticism but i can do the shit out of this yeah and uh that was like well shit man i'm glad you found it but you know i mean that kind of disproves your the, the model that uh you know all athleticism is you know is built on this platform of olympic weightlifting yeah now and i like some of the the movements like i'm big on doing like a split jerk with our athletes because it's a drop step it's a loaded drop step right so and then i could teach that high gear under load so i really like that and we have a, a piece of equipment called the dual renegade bar system by pure motion. That's a friend of mine, George Bonet, unbelievable system. Um, so it's explain, incredible. Explain it to us if you don't mind. Dual renegade. Okay. What? So dual renegade bars. So it's pure motion P U R and then motion M O T I O N by George Bonet. George was a, um, a double Olympic athlete for Puerto Rico. Um, he started as a judoka and then he got into um, bobsled because of ex the explosiveness, right? The quickness and the push. So he created this system over the years. It started out with just a clean and jerk unit. And now what's funny is it's been bastardized and a bunch of people have come out with it, which is like, it looks like a square like this. And then it's got where you can load plates on. That's got handles that are in a neutral grip. Then the handles just rotate. So you get out of actually having to receive a bar and if you don't have good mobility, right? How many times have you seen people like this or like oh, this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, think about the pressure we're putting on, on the subacromial space, you know, here yeah. when you have a weight 400 pounds like this, but they're big enough and strong enough to do it when they really can't get to here. So this system gets rid of that. So now all you do is right here. Everybody can do it. I can teach the most non-athletic person to clean with this system in less than five minutes. Wow. Good news for McQuilkin. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Burn ban. You're an, a, a tremendous Olympic lifter. <laughs> better than me. That's a sincere sa statement. I don't think so. You don't think you're better than me? Well, think? you're stronger. You can lift hey, more weight. Hey, we can argue about this later. Let's uh, uh, dock <laughs> no, his. We just need 20, 25 more minutes. No, <laughs> <laughs> See, they, this is what they do. They're like uh, uh, like my brothers or even like my pit bulls. Like everything's fine. And then all of a sudden they look at each other the wrong way and they battle mm -hmm. for like two minutes and then we got to get back on track. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, and then I think anthropometrics come into it when you, when you talk about Olympic weightlifting too, right? I mean, obviously if you have longer arms um, – you know, in shorter legs and a shorter torso, what's going to happen is when you go to pull, you're going to have a longer, when you get there, you can get into hip extension sooner. 
So there's not going to be as much necessarily put on your back and you can try to keep the bar a little bit, you know, but your grip has to be a little bit wider. Like my grip is really wide because I've got, I think if I measure it, you know, we could do another really cool one. Somebody else do it though, is your, your wingspan should be your height. So somebody go stand up against that back wall and do your arms like this straight up and down, then stand there and see where you are. Just a moment. So stand, put your fingertips down on the ground. Put your fingertips down on the ground. Yep, but face the wall, face the wall, face, face the, wall. the wall. Face the wall. Face the wall. Yep. Yeah, get right up to that skeleton. Good. Now leave your fingertip there at the top and then stand up. Leave your fingertip at the top and then stand, stand up. Stand up. That should be his height. Up a little yeah. bit shorter. Yep. Of the wing so stand. he's got, he has short arms relative to his body size. So. So Short when you think about it and certain things, that, that could be a, a positive. Your, it could be a good thing. Your product of inbreeding, he said. Yeah, oh, yep. yeah that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, my dad's loved me. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was saying that your wingspan is slightly shorter than your height. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah. you know you're a short-arm guy. Yeah, oh, yeah. So my wingspan is 78 inches, and I'm 5'11". Ooh, 6'6", six, six, huh? So when you think about it, you know, when you when you throw a jab, you're so much further. It's deceptive. People don't think they're oh, this guy's only five eleven, and then the next thing you know, it's like boom. So Michael so Phelps, gorilla. Was the gorilla, right. big time. It's horrible. And then um, Michael Phelps was another example. He had that same type of body type, right? Really long arms, huge hands, huge um, big feet. feet. Yeah, big feet. Yeah, short so, legs, yep. uh, sh short legs, long torso. Yeah. It, it, so the anthropometrics kind of predict to where you go and then you migrate to certain sports. Uh, seeing know? Michael Phelps out of the water is hilarious. Like, yeah. just like you, like you see him and you're like, man, that dude, he must wear like a 32 pan inseam. And the yeah. guy's what, like six, seven? Like, I, mean, I don't know. If he, I don't think he's that tall. I, I mean, <laughs> when I met him, he was only 13 years old. He was kind of pretty, he was pretty small, but uh, he grew, I think he's like six, three or six, four, somewhere in there. You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando or the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline? Kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. 
A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic, who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. When you join a power athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief. Seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars Episodes 1 through 3. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go imposter program? Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show. Doc, we've talked a lot about the foot and the structure in terms of uh, redirecting and transmitting force in dry land sport. What considerations are there with aquatic sports and the foot? Obviously, I think plantar flexion is important, but is there anything else in there? No, you know, I think what's ironic about the sport of swimming is the fastest part of the race is what? The start. Underwater, yeah. On the start. When you push off the block and you're driving into the block, that's the fastest part of the race. You're moving at the highest velocity. The second fastest part of the race is when you push off the wall. And ironically, what's the slowest part of the race when you swim? Mm. So, you know, until uh, the world of swimming outlawed kicking underwater, um, you know, they changed the sport because what happened was everybody realized they were faster also kicking underwater because they would just stay underwater. So there was a Russian guy that I remember, Dennis Pankratov, that would he would swim, you know, 50 meters, almost the whole length of the Olympic pool underwater. And then they were like, you can't do that. And then Dave Burkoff in backstroke would, you know, dolphin kick on his back and you can't do that. And I had an athlete actually set a world record before they actually outlawed that. And then they went to the 15 meters, which really, when we think about it from that perspective is BS, because if you're six, seven, like Nathan Adrian, or some of these guys, six, nine, six, 10, six, 11, that's not fair. You literally have to come up too soon. So, yeah, yeah. So then with that said, then obviously the push comes from the foot in which the same dynamics are yeah. taken into consideration yep. to maximize that force. Production. Yeah. And then obviously the length of the foot can make a big difference. Right. And then plantar flexion. You're right. Because it's like a fin. It's just like a fin. Bigger what, foot. What about uh, um, it, like uh, what is it? Uh, extension of the knees. Like um, if somebody was hypermobile and had like a, you know, called genu recurvatum. That's genu recurvatum, and that's beneficial. um, Yeah, it is, and actually, I think it's a it's it is an environmental portion of swimming. Like, if you look at a lot of swimmers, they are hypermobile to begin with, right? Because they need to have great range of motion um, throughout their whole body, shoulders, hips, knees. Um, So, with that, with as you kick more and more, right, you go into that terminal extension. So what happens is you start to actually lengthen those connective tissue and also uh, the hamstring. So, yeah, you will have recurvatum. 
uh, as a combination. It's actually gross when you see some female swimmers stand and they lock their legs out. They yeah. literally bow backwards. Yeah, we yeah. used to call it raptor legs. Uh, I have no idea why. Well, it, well it, <laughs> I guess so I on racehorses, no uh, that'll actually, um, they call it back of the knee uh, in racehorses, and they won't run them. And, like, if a horse is back in the knee, they basically just turn it out and sell it as a quarter horse yeah. or as a, you know, something else. But, like, racehorses, that's a big deal, back of the knee. So that was yeah, what we used to call girls. We'd see them and be like, ooh, she's back of the knee. No, she could never <laughs> run the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> or the Oaks for girls. Sorry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, looking at it, I think from a swimming perspective, because you're in water, it, it's not going to have quite the same same effect. So flat-footed, rigid, um, normal, you know, neutral arch, I, I don't think you'll see it as much like a precedence in, in swimming. We're beginning to see strength and conditioning enter into the sport of swimming, but there's still a lot of the younger high school and below that haven't yet found the weight room. So they're stuck with dry land training, and I know that it's nothing but ab exercise or getting your heart rate up. So what are some mistakes that people can correct through easy weight training or smart land training that that you can recommend? Yeah, well, okay, that's a pretty big question. So let's kind of take it step by step. So first thing I think you got to do is you got to assess all these kids. So you got to see how they move. Um, I don't care what you use. It could be an FMS screen. It could be whatever. I mean, before I even knew the functional movement screen, I had my own form of, you know, like screening of a test that I would do that included push-ups, um, overhead squat, uh, pull-ups, um, and then even some basic movements like dumbbell press, um, an RDL, a toe touch, all those basic things. So you got to assess them first. And then I think what you have to do is you have to teach those kids how to brace properly. So have you ever read any material by Stuart McGill, Dr. Stuart McGill? He's yes. a so, alum of this podcast. Yeah. So I definitely would say, you know, learn the big three. Um, and then we created the big six, um, which just adds on to it a little bit more, but teach them how to brace properly first. So, cause a lot of times those kids don't know how to brace. And the reason why I say that is because then when you go to squat and you start squatting and you can't brace properly, you're limited. So a lot of times with our athletes, I make sure if you can't overhead squat, then I don't load you heavy with a back squat because I've, I've been coaching for 35 years. If you, I've never, ever seen an athlete who can overhead squat, but can't back squat, but I've seen thousands of athletes who can back squat, but can't overhead squat. And so you, one of the first doc, are you limiting that to youth athletes or is that even no. in this that is goes across your whole gym, huh? You name it. You well, what about it. if shoulder flexibility is an issue? It, it could be. Thoracic mobility could be an issue. And if it is an issue, then that's something that should be addressed. But that might be one of the areas where you can still let them back squat. Mm -hmm. Right? Still going to affect their back squat, though, because when they actually try to externally rotate and get into this position, they're going to have some type of compensation. Sure. So the goal is, is try to make everybody overhead squat. Look at you, you old CrossFitter, you. <laughs> yeah, no, so on uh, our end. Who, who was it? Matt Swift uh, told me once that uh, the, the greatest measure of athleticism was the overhead squat. Mm, mm. I, I would, I, someone asked me one time, what's the, what is the best overall single lift? And I said it was an overhead squat. Best for what? Just overall. 
I thought best like if, if there was circuit. an absolute, right? If there was an absolute, mm-hmm. I would say it was the overhead squat. So let me let me pose a, a scenario to you. You got a young kid who can't overhead squat. You got eight weeks, but you have to drive absolute strength. Um, but wait, 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 wait a second. Why do we just have eight weeks? Off season. There are three. Then that athletes. has to change. So when I worked with Olympic athletes, how, do, how, do you would have change, a, how would you change that for a high school kid? Okay. So let's say we have a quadrennial, which is four years. So which is what we would use to work with Olympic athletes. Well, mm-hmm. when a, a kid's a freshman in high school, how long do they have in high school usually? Sure. Four years. When they go to college, well, now a lot of these guys are leaving in three years, go to the NFL. Um, so how long do they usually stay? Four years four years. So we have that quadrennium again. So what I would say is if you only have eight weeks, why do we have eight weeks? What we should be doing is saying, Hey, let's set this kid up for the future mm-hmm. and let's work on him for six months, get mm-hmm. him to be able to overhead squat first before we actually put him under load, hmm. fix the problem first, make him move better movement quality first, then start to load him down the road. So you that, would be, that would be the way that I would do it. Wouldn't even consider something like a safety squat bar uh, help, you know, kind of parallel that in terms of addressing that stiff upper back, perhaps, or shoulder restriction uh, simultaneously with developing systemic kind of tr- trunk and lower leg strength. Sure, disproportionately to the level of mobility in the upper back, but yeah, you can kind of accommodate both in a more of like an undulating only- and parallel training style, right? Possibly, but what happens if we actually, as we train them in the movements that we're training them, we're actually reinforcing what I call a negative recruitment pattern, something that's actually keeping them in those compensatory patterns. So if we're we're gaining that strength, but gaining that strength to do something specifically doesn't allow them to move better, I would, I would, you know, err on the side of, Hey, I want to move better not so worry about, about strength first. So sure. Then the, the like uh, apps, if you, we were to take that approach, which we're, is more in line with what we would do, but we're also taking on a daily assessment as well, right? Yeah. So, and, and we're not squatting to necessarily squat. We know that with younger athletes in terms of strength development, speed development, we tend to see a commensurate increase in that novice window, that first exposure to training. When absolute strength goes up, speed goes up, but then the stimulus needs to change once you hit that accommodation, right? right? And Yes, and, uh, and the other thing is what happens if their mechanics suck? Mm-hmm. So what happens if their sprint mechanics aren't really good, but they're getting faster? Right. So do you think, oh, we've done a great job, but have you really? Because the more you, what people call, and there's no such thing as muscle memory. Sure. So when that neuromuscular recruitment pattern is trained, what happens if you're training and then they start running that way? And then they stick to that running pattern when really you have to change that pattern. Mm-hmm. I will, I'll give swimming credit there because the one thing about swimming is the biomechanics are even more important than sprint running because you have to have impeccable mechanics in the water to actually be, right. you know, a world record holder. It might look ugly on the top, but the top doesn't do anything. Underneath the water is what does it. So sprint mechanics, if you can get them to sprint and they look better, but they're slower than another kid, I'm good with that. Because yeah, it's going to catch up, right? I don't need them to be the fastest 10 year old on the planet. Right, right. I need them to be the fastest 18 to 24 year old on the planet, set the world record and then get millions of dollars and then do whatever else you want to do. Yeah. That's a great call on that. If you can, cause you have in those younger, in that younger years, you have more, I guess they're more plastic, right? More pliable 
in terms yep. of changing that pattern versus taking a 24-year-old dude who's just been running like a duck since he's been yep. 12 and trying to change it? How many times do you guys see videos on social media where it's a high school strength coach posting these videos of these kids lifting heavy and it's absolutely horrid technique? Hey, it's impressive. I'm not. I'm not saying that's not impressive. No, right? it's like it's, squat suits it's not and impressive. chains. Uh, like I'll, I'll just give you an example. Years ago, I got a video from a guy who was trying to develop this piece of equipment to get football players ready, and it was a football helmet with a pad on top. And he showed uh, the, his kid wearing this helmet, dropping a bar with like 135 on his head, and then doing these dynamic push presses off his skull. And he wanted to know if I would help him market it. Yeah, so we bought 20. And uh, my comment to <laughs> him kidding. is like, um, first of all, never show anybody this video. Second of all, don't <laughs> ever do that. And third, uh, if you tell anybody that I saw it and didn't drive out there and fucking punch you in the face, I'm going to drive out there and punch you in the face. John, is that where, is that where you got the term CrossFit football? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, no, I mean, just, just the amount of people, like, like just the stupidity of things that we've seen. I mean, I, I like, I remember a guy sending me a video of uh, these kids wearing squat suits and wraps with like 135 on the bar. And I'm like, and the crazy part is they weren't even squatting anywhere near parallel because they couldn't. They were like fucking rubber yep. bands. I mean, yep. you like, uh, they'll post, ESPN will periodically post guys. Uh, whether they're college or maybe some NFL dudes doing power cleans and things. And like, I look at it and I'm like, and you're scared. It's yeah. just, it, but, but you know what, but they can power clean for over 400. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's not a power clean really. It's a reverse. So, yeah. Like one of the things we talked about, like for our CrossFit here was maybe we start having more of an emphasis instead of how much weight you can lift and how, and AMRAP and all the different workouts what happens if it was more based on how good you looked when you lifted like how good is the technique man that was sweet right if we would do that and we would go from that perspective and then you got stronger think about how much better your lifts would be uh that sounds exactly well, like our philosophy yeah. where if it like if it yeah, looks boiling, ugly there's a good chance point. it is it, it, it is ugly mike when we we would have deadlifts during our, our old crossfit clinic and part of the argument was, I forget the term, like ab wrap, so as beautiful reps as possible and yeah. turn deadlifting into a beauty contest. Dude, yeah. so, I would yeah. tell people, man, I didn't what fly halfway it? around the world to ab watch rap, you fucking AB. blow out L4 or L5 because it's going to kill good. the guy behind you. Hey, and you guys just brought up something really good. So I love this because this is one that I've gotten into debates with Nick Tuminello, Jonathan Mike. Um, the deadlift, the barbell deadlift, is an inherently flawed lift. I agree with you on that. Inherently flawed lift. So when we look at the deadlift, I, what I would, you know, if we had it and we could share the screens and we could do it, look at some of the world records, Thor, look at um, Eddie Hall, just look at any, even the power lifters. Have you ever seen a world record set with perfect deadlift technique, meaning they maintain the trunk to floor angle as they lift it, they all get into a rounded back position because it, it's inherent to the lift. Yeah, I'm not saying deadlift's a bad lift. I'm just saying it's inherently flawed lift when you get to a maximum. Well, if, if you notice, uh, if you go from a flat back to a round back is when you have problems. But if you notice, they always start in a round back and they finish in a round back. So uh, the idea that you have to pull every deadlift off the ground with a flat back, uh, I guess is... Um, people that have never really pulled heavy weights. And I remember when I got into CrossFit um, and we started teaching for them, I realized it was a lot like the 40-year-old virgin, you know? 
like two bags of sand. I'm like, oh, fuck, you guys have never lifted heavy weights. You know, I remember the <laughs> yeah. first time people saw me bench 405 for reps and realized that most people in here couldn't fucking deadlift it. It just came down to it. I was like, man, this is like a um, this is like basketball in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's like it's like people are reinventing this stuff. And um, as you you know, you come from a strength and conditioning place where you're training athletes and then all of a sudden you bring it in and you're like, man, these guys are 30 years old and this is the first time they've ever touched a barbell. Yeah. Like this was so foreign. I mean, as you know, this is stuff we did when we were 12 and 13 and 14 years old. It was it's been our life for our entire. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what were you doing for the last 15 years? Where have you been? You're 30 yeah. years old. I mean, thank God you're at the party. But what the? F- well, I never really got into this. And you're like, man, like so we have a 30 year old beginner or a 40 year old beginner that completely fucking flipped me on my mind uh, on uh, on the axis of how do you train uh, somebody who is at this advanced age? Uh, that technically is a novice in so many ways that doesn't understand, you know, how to generate force out of the bottom of a squat or how to be dynamic or, you know, rotation and all these things. And that, that part was uh, enlightening to me, to say the least. And, and yeah. Doc, in that vein too, working with the, the coaches who are responsible for a lot of the, the athletes. And then the, the premise of our seminar is like, hey, you're a CrossFit coach. Now you have a team coming into your gym or you have athletes and you want to prepare them not to CrossFit, but play sports. Um, you know, the, the, it was just a foreign concept when we would introduce the philosophy of training for the for the performance trait of athleticism or the collection of traits. And, you know, which the training is constructed of movements and movement selection and sequencing and volume and intensity. Yes. But the theme in what you as a coach are responsible for is really moderating movement. The, you know, the, the connection of the movements and movement proficiency. So regardless of if it's a strength adaptation or if you're patterning, there's this blueprint of movement that you're really there to enforce and be a lifeguard for. So that's where we would always get into that when you're adding stress to a movement, whether it's load, speed, or duration, or amplitude, or frequency, however you want to shake it out, like all these stressors, proficiency is paramount. You take it to the boiling point, but never that breaking point. And that could be in isometrics. That could be in the barbell lifts. That could be in sprint patterning. That could be in, I mean, you name it. It was just. But that's what CrossFit taught. You remember at the level one, they go into that demonstration or talking about shooting. And they're like, hey, if I pull the gun and I shoot and I get all 10 within there, I need to go faster. Mm -hmm. I need to be eight out of 10. And uh, I said to him, I was like, if I fucking won 80% of the time, I wouldn't have had a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm looking for a 10 out of 10. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to pull as fast as I can. I'm going to shoot as fast as I can to get 10 and 10. And I'm not going to increase speed until I can maintain that. So what you're doing is you're inherently teaching people that shitty technique is OK. And they were like, you know, and they got into the argument. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I played at the highest level. I played mm-hmm. 10 years mm-hmm. in the NFL as a starter. And I'm telling you that if I was 80 percent effective, I would not have fucking had a job past first first yep. day. So you're yep. building this shit in and this is your own. And I, I think it came back to um uh, the idea that, you know, within CrossFit, the the single lever to pull is intensity. And, uh, you know, relative that's good. maximal yeah, intensity. Yeah, sorry, relative maximal intensity. And, like, when that becomes your, uh, you know, your God, that's, you know, and that's the altar you lay yourself at, then the only thing you can hope to do is say, well, fuck it, you know. But now if you look at all the games athletes, those guys have, are moving so fast, but the level of efficiency at how they're moving, they don't look like they're even working that hard. So yeah. it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Like you watch Rich Froning or any of these top guys, they, they all move really well and they're all pretty proficient. I've never seen those guys do anything poorly because bad technique takes right. away from time. They're looking for the most efficient movement pattern. And they're usually shorter. Yeah, they're the shorter you are, The shorter you are, the less displacement the bar has. So what does that mean when you were to, to match sure. something? 
side by side, a six, five or six, three athlete versus a five, eight, five, nine, five, 10 athlete, the bar is going to lose moot. So if you have to do 50 reps, this bar's not even moving the same cumulative distance that this bar is for this taller athlete. It's just right. not fair. Yeah. It's just, well, it goes back to the same like 15 meter pool. Uh, restriction, yeah. right? Well, and, yep. and the hilarious one on CrossFit is if you look at the uh, top games, male and female, they're about the same size. Like they're all like five six, five seven, five eight, and uh, you know, obviously the guys are a little heavier than the girls. But if you notice, all those girls are all probably five six, five seven, five eight, and mm-hmm. the dudes are five six, five seven, five eight. They're all about the same size. Mm-hmm. And this is not, I guess, going back to what you said earlier, Doc. Is like we're also in terms of CrossFit, the methodology and the community. Like, I guess. I would yeah, say we're, 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 we're advocates of that and yeah. what it's done yeah. for getting people uh, off the couch and, and putting barbells in people's hands. But then you get to like these fringe definitions of CrossFit, i.e. the games or the mothership. Well, well or it's, it's going like to change now that the dogma. The, you know, ding dong, the, the wicked witch is dead and Glassman <laughs> got fucking ousted. And they're bringing in this uh, this other guy who's probably going to run the 2012 game plan of like, let's blow the fucking games up. Let's get a shoe deal and let's make sure that there's billboards of shirtless dudes thrusting their ass off all around the world so we can blow this thing up. Opposed from Glassman trying to fucking assassinate Big Sugar in some conspiracy theory. You got me on the ding dong. Ding dong. Uh, dude, as soon as he sold it, I, I got like uh, all these texts of like, like um, you know, the Wicked Witch with the uh, uh, house and the feet. And it was like, oh, Glassman got squashed by the house. Ding dong, see, the Wicked Witch is dead. I didn't dead. see any of those, oh, but that's fuck. epic. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? Thank God. Um, fuck yeah, that, that was definitely a, that was a black day for, for CrossFit. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, you know, the, and I, I'm sure you've met uh, Greg, but... Um, uh, I've not. I've never met him before. Uh, count yourself as lucky, man. I, um, I've, uh, the only person I've ever... Uh, like, I've never met anybody that was uh, so charismatic in one way and so different in another. Like, like almost like a you know, sociopath could put on a face and get out there and was like incredibly just charismatic speaking in front. And you get him out there and you're like... Man, you didn't believe a fucking word of that stuff. Like, just really, um, sociopath is the only word I could I could ever put for him, and, and almost to the point of uncomfortable because you're like, you didn't believe a single word you said, but you just swayed 500 people in that way, and it's like, you know, this is so uh, fucking best thing ever happened to CrossFit. Yeah. Mike, I got a question, and yeah. so I'm in my I'm thinking overuse injuries. So think volleyball and baseball youth sports specialization same movement yep. pattern over and over and over and we're seeing now the sport of fitness work its way into youth it's the same repetitive movement patterns over and over do you foresee from your experience any potential issues of overuse injuries but now at the knees and the hips from all the sagittal plane movement or am i way off no i think that it could be and then we have to look at the actual determinants that affect injury. So what are the things that affect injury? How often, meaning the volume, right? The intensity, so the load. So when we look at those two things, we got to kind of, and if you look at the injury curve, what's ironic is, are you guys familiar with the injury curve? It's kind of like this, right? So where does the greatest number of injuries? So this would be like a one rep max. This would be like a thousand reps. It's right here, the largest volume under the curve. So that's where you have a combination of load and volume, and that's when they get injured. So again, that could go all the way back to us talking about that movement quality. Make these kids move well first. That should be the, the, the fundamental thing. 
then start actually adding some strength, then start doing what I call the numerator. Now, there's going to be interesting thing here. I do think there's a strength threshold, meaning you don't need you only need to be so strong. Yeah. A lot of people don't believe that. Right. Look at the strongman competitors. Number one, none of them are clean and they're all going to die young. Well, yeah, they're okay. 400 plus pounds. I mean, uh, 400 yep. pound people don't live that long. Yep. And, and so, you know, when we look at it from that perspective, there is a strength threshold. So you should only be so strong. One of my favorite players, I'm a huge Alabama fan because that's where I got my PhD, master's and PhD, and I coached there. So Derrick Henry, he didn't need to squat 600 pounds. He did not need to squat 600 pounds. And Tim Sukumel, Dr. Tim Sukumel has actually written an interesting article with Mike Stone about, you know, strength threshold and where is it? I really do think there is a strength threshold. So- uh, Doc, I couldn't agree with you more on this. And, and I, I found it myself. I remember uh, after my first year, I wanted to try to – I got as big and strong as I could. I ended up doing 535 for a triple on the bench. The problem is I weighed 327 pounds to do it. Yep. And uh, I was effectively too big yep. uh, to yep. play tackle. And I remember uh, I left and was like, man, I got to lose weight. You know, lost 20 pounds, came back at about 306, 307, still could bench, you know, 450, 475 for reps yep. and was dramatically stronger. And I realized that um, and I, it was actually is that um, uh, it was in super training where they talked about a study they did with shot putters where the amount of time that it or so that 200, I want to say 200 kilos was the amount of weight on the bench press that they felt was most efficient to throw the Olympic shot. And the time yep. and effort and size and requirement that it took to get to like 250 or even 225 uh, took away from the velocity and their ability to throw the shot. And I looked at that and was like, dude, the time and effort Absolutely. that it's going to take to get me to those is going to take away from the speed and the strength and really the time I need to put into technique. And so then that's where I kind of set these threat, like did the same thing, set thresholds that, hey, this is how strong I need to be to be this efficient. And then I knew training in the offseason, as soon as I hit those numbers, I was ready. Yeah. And that and that actually is the birth of the term transfer of trainedness, trained, not train training, transfer of trainedness. That's Mel Siff and Verkashansky. Yeah. So they, they were the ones that actually came up with that. And that's I mean, that's an excellent point because then that's the power, right? So the numerator only needs to get so big. But if you need to gain too much lean body mass to make the numerator bigger and now you move slower, the power goes down. That's not good. Now, for a strongman competitor, yeah, they're moving planes. They're moving freaking whatever a plane weighs or fire trucks or whatever the hell it is. You're not going to see a 200-pound person move that. They, don't, they can't create enough inertia, right, and then momentum – to actually move the plane. So they have to be 400 pounds. But I think for most athletes, and that's one of the problems, is we're trying to make people too strong. And we're not saying, look, this is this is good enough, right? I had an athlete, uh, Desmond Laflamme Mitchell. He was a point guard. This joker was strong. He weighed maybe a buck 65, and he squatted 495 for a triple. And we do box squats. And my box squat is not a box squat where you sit, translate, and then roll out. My box squat is a touch and go. That way I can control the depth to where you don't get to the point where you're going to get injured, right? It's just a control. If you lose it and you can't get it, we take the weight off of you. But touch and go. That joker would be right at parallel. Boom, knock it out. Did he really need to squat that much? Nope. Not even close. But you know what? He had the whole weight room, every one of the players surrounding him. And I was like, okay, I've seen him squat enough. I know what he can do. I know he can do this. So I let him do it. He didn't need to squat that. And I think that's where we go wrong. 
especially with middle school and high school athletes, is we're trying to set a record in that weight room, right, and get it up there. And then those kids get into these compensatory patterns and in these compromised positions, and then they get injured. Yeah, all you for know the what? sake of strength, right? Yeah, uh, yep. and then I've, I've been saying this for years. Nobody ever asked me what I bench or what I squat on the field. You know, when you walk out there before the first play, like, hey, what'd you bench? Yep. Oh, 500? I'm just going to go home right now. And so, like, I, I always thought that, like, the training in the weight room has to be, has to drive towards on-field performance. And if you Absolutely. get to the point where, where you're so stiff or you've, you've gotten so big that you are trying to move these incredible weights, and um, part of the reason that really the foundation of really power athlete was just observation. I remember when I was playing for the uh, Eagles, we uh, brought in a dude who was this big, strong fucking guy. I watched him bench 585 for, like, a pretty easy triple before we went out on the field. And this dude was huge. I mean, huge chest, huge this. Everything was big up front. Fucking no ass, no calves, no back. But goddamn, that dude was strong. And they, these coaches were so excited to see this dude almost bench 600 pounds for reps. We went out on the field, and uh, it was a padded practice. And they actually cut him before the practice was done. Like, hey, we got to get you out of here. You're going to get hurt. Because <laughs> yep. we were tea kettling him. And, like, yep. uh, there was this they, – they couldn't fathom that this dude was this strong. And I was like, you yep. know, the strength is only good if you can port it out. And that was something I was always able to do. But, like, that comes down to angles. It comes down to bending your knees, sure. flexibility, all these other things. Yep. And uh, for a long time I've been like, hey, the weight room's great, but uh, they don't hand out or, uh, Super Bowl trophies and rings and big yep. contracts based on what you do in the weight room. But you can yep. use this as a tool if you understand how to train. And a lot of the stuff that I saw was ridiculous. And so yeah, really the foundation ever- of this whole company was based on this. Yeah, and what's interesting is I, I've done this numerous times because I'm not a, a huge guy. I'm, I'm, I'm 5'11", 205. Um, but I, I can't tell you how many times I'd have football players that would come in and they could, they could bench 400 easily. But then I'd talk to them and I'd be like, you know, how, how do you integrate? Like, how good is your core? Could you overhead squat? Nope, nah, I can't overhead squat. Don't have thoracic mobility. So I said, let me try this. Single leg split squat, dual pulley cable chest press. Right. So what you do is you get into a single leg split squat position. Knee is not on the ground. You sit straight up. Right. And then you press. I would out press them and I couldn't bench press what they could bench press. And they would be like, what the hell? Yeah. And I was like, because you can't integrate it. You have leakage. You have gas. What I like. Remember the movie, The Green Lantern, where the gas would come out? Well, that would be where you leak that gas. So that guy that benched 600, he probably had no core and he couldn't do anything into the ground, but he laying flat on his back. He could damn bench press. What good does that do? Nothing. What good does it do? Well, the, um, so, uh, I talked, I was on a podcast recently and, um, the guy asked me, you know, like, what do you think the one thing that you did that really helped you go on to play in the NFL? And I I told him the story when I was 14 years old, there was uh, the old power lifter I trained with was a guy named George Zangus, who, who owned uh, Marathon Nutrition. He invented the super suits and the wraps. And uh, so he, he was old power lifter in our neighborhood, and he would take, like, you know, different kids who he thought maybe had potential to play after, and he, we would train in his garage. And his good friend was uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Fred Hatfield, a.k.a. Dr. Squat. And yep. I was 14 years old, and he was talking to me about compensatory acceleration. And so he always told me, I want you to, every time you touch a barbell, I want you to try to break it. And the, these guys have heard it hundreds of times, but the joke he said is, don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. I want you to be as yep. violent as you can, moving yep. it from point A to point B. If it's yeah. uh, lift 135 like it's 500 and 500 like it's 1,000, you know. And, he, and it, that piece, and I remember going and lifting weights and people being like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to break these motherfuckers. 
And I think it's that piece. Uh, when all of a sudden I went out to go play football, I was trying to not just punch people. I was trying to put my hands through them. If I was going to hit somebody, I was trying to drive through them. And as mechanical advantage increases, I was trying to fucking break things. And I think that piece, when I watch those guys, they don't understand that violent nature and they were never able to translate what they did in the weight room because with that same violent nature out onto the field. Yeah, no, agree. Uh, You know, when I was at Furman University, I I had an excellent mentor because I think mentoring is probably really the best way that our field will keep going, right? Like what you guys do and the information that you're putting out there and um, you try to be as informed as you possibly can. But Dr. Tony. Tony Catarazzano, it was funny because back when I was in college and I was an athlete, we did something what we called speed weights, which is exactly what you were saying. And I was doing that over 30 years ago. So I'm, I'm 54 years old at, you know, 1920, we were doing what we called speed weights. And what that was is you put what you could put on there and you moved it as fast as you possibly could. And it wasn't just one time, it was multiple times. So we would do it. And then we had some old, um, hydraulic uh pieces that you could like do a leg press and you get on that thing it was nasty you get on there boom, 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 go as fast as you can turn up the the, the volume but or the um intensity like the the resistance and just go as fast and it had a spring-loaded thing so that thing shoot back as fast as you could do it but sure enough i could stand under a basketball goal and i was a swimmer and i could dunk a volleyball yeah so it's it's about power that is exactly right i mean it is about moving explosively build the numerator to where it needs to be right but then still be able to move fast and then train the denominator that's where the derivatives and movement speed weights all of that unfortunately the guys that are being i guess touted or the guys that are working with a lot of these young athletes are these big stiff power lifters and i remember i'm being like dude if if power lifting was the vehicle to get you to play in the nfl i'd be playing yep. with a bunch of power lifters the problem was hey. i wasn't and uh and i would see those dudes all the time and it was like dude i like moving a bar from point a to point b with your with your feet slit and like you know you go through the whole deal i have a ton of respect for it but at the end of the day uh there's a reason bill kazmaier uh, you know, went out and got killed by the Green Bay Packers. I mean, he told me, well, he didn't tell me the story as well as I hoped he would when we met Kaz at Summer Strong. But, I mean, probably one of the strongest humans to ever walk the earth. And he's like, those guys hit me so fucking hard. It was incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when you think about it and we look at, um, you know, I, it's so funny because you think about pickup basketball, right? So I've got friends that have squatted 900, 1,000 pounds. I don't want them on my pickup basketball team. Mm-hmm. They're strong as crap, but they can't get net. Right. So on that, let's dig in a little more. So there's, we're all kind of in greens on this strength threshold, an absolute strength threshold. What, um, in your opinion, Doc, what are the variables that would determine that? Like, and, or the interrelated attributes or strength attributes where you know, oh, shit, I'm too strong. And yeah. I, I have a feeling it's going to be kind of task specific and maybe position if we're getting into sport, right? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted. So there are a couple of things, you know, some people will talk about two times your body weight and squat, uh, two and a half times your body weight and squat. Um, but I think what it has to do with is your movement specific, sport specific testing, right? So if, if you get stronger, but your five yard dash goes, gets slower, that's not good. So I think that's you have to start looking at the specific attributes associated with the sport and then look to see. And, yeah. that, and you know, that's, you know, that, that's how I would do it. 
How about that's like, how I do it? How, how about for just guys and gals that like training, right? Let's say they're I'm thinking of like field strongers or even jacks, like people who follow some of our online training. Yeah. Um, and we so we do we mindfully construct the training so that there is opportunity to determine if you've been too strong, whether it's med ball work or, you know, some sort of, um, you know, open, uh, open loop movement or, uh, uh, what we would call dynamic movement prep. But, um, what do you think for a guy who's just training former athlete? Uh, what could you be measuring to determine if you, if you're kind of tapping into that reversibility and training yeah. too much of that strength? Well, I think, you know, and there was a great podcast Joe Rogan did with a strength coach guy. I'm trying to remember his name, Robert something. And he talked about how deadlift was so bad. Like you shouldn't do it. It's just bad for your back. Um, Eric Cressy says, if you've never had a herniated disc, then you've never deadlifted. Um, so I, I think there's a point, And then that's where we have to kind of determine that because how many guys do you know? And I have a lot of friends that are PhDs that are, that were power lifters, but at 35 and have hip replacement, shoulder replacement, who the hell wants that? But you could say you squatted a thousand pounds. I don't give a damn because you're going to be limping when you're 50. Well, I'm, so, I'm always amazed at uh, the amount of guys with knee replacement, shoulder replacements. I mean, I was thinking about Matt Vincent, you know, 36 with a knee replacement. And um, when he sent me his MRI, it actually looked better than mine. But uh, like the amount of guys that. Uh, yeah, are, but what did he do? What did he do? Oh, he was did a power lifter. Did he play in the NFL? No. Did he, he play in the NFL? Uh, no. That's he the point. College, he Highland was, Games, dude. Yeah. College, yes, he was college thrower, shot putter. Yeah, yeah, he was a thrower and then Highland Games guy. Yeah. But I, I think what's interesting is uh, I see a lot more uh, joint replacements in power lifters than I do in football players. Yep. Like, I mean, Dave, Agreed. You know, uh, Dave Tate, like, I think he's got a hip, he's got a shoulder. And I remember him telling me all this. And I'm like, yo, man, like, you're in <laughs> fucking worse shape than, like, most football players I know. And, uh, well, Louie, too, right? Louie yeah. had, I think, shoulder replacement. Didn't he have hip replacement or knee? Yeah. I mean, he's he's pretty banged up, too. Yeah. So that's my point. What To what extent do we want to do what we do? And then your quality of life, you know, do you really want to walk around saying you're the strongest 70-year-old on the planet, but you're hobbling? I don't think so. I still want to be able to move well. I want to right, play with right. my grandkids. Chase, I right. want to run around, chase the dog, you know, whatever. I mean, well, I think I think longevity. we've gotten to that point. Yes, well, I think it's longevity, but I think a lot of people, especially guys like younger guys, and like I probably was like this too, uh, where you're like, your brain hasn't hardened, you have no ability to perceive the future, and I just know that like I want to be the best at this game, and whatever it takes, I'm gonna fucking. And I, the joke I've always said is, you got to set your body on the altar and be willing to set it on fire uh, every time you go out, and um, that realization when you start to get a little bit older and you start like oh wait wait a minute i can see what like, it was i thinking yeah like my brain's hardened a little <laughs> bit i might live past 25 and uh you know but i think a lot of guys uh, especially get in that kind of ego piece and like all of a sudden now ego's driving the ship and a lot of times yep. man that's when you get in trouble yep i agree i think that's exactly our ego is is an amazing thing because it can it can make us do things that just we would think are unfathomable like just not possible but in the end, we pay for it. Yeah, it was, I, I listened to a, a Rogan podcast yesterday, was talking with, uh, God, what was the doctor? Uh, like a neurologist, super sharp dude. And they were uh, uh, talking about like, um, was it Gogan's? How he's basically effectively like willed himself into being like, you know, so hard and be able to do these things. And as he's going through it, the guy's like, yeah, but I don't know what longevity is in that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and then because if you can will yourself past such a level that where you turn your brain off and the body's not able to respond, like what does longevity look like? Like what detrimental, yeah. you know, things that you're doing to the body? Yeah, you're, you know, harder than coffin nails, but like you're going to be in the coffin sooner than somebody who yep. might have a little bit of a of a e-break. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like for me personally, I, I kind of try to live it. So I don't lift super heavy anymore. I'll, I'll still lift, but it, I mean, now for some people, for you guys, it might not seem very heavy, but for normal people, it would be, you know, pretty heavy. So if I trap bar deadlift and I'm pulling 315 to, you know, 400, you know, for most normal people, that's a lot of weight. Right. So, but I'm good with it. I don't need to, I don't need to pull more than that. Um, we also make it joint specific. So when I have a six, eight basketball player, I'm not making him pull from the floor. I'm looking at his joint specific angles and then I have him pull from blocks and that's what we'll do. Squat, you know, I'm, uh, you know, uh, that would have been an interesting discussion because I'm kind of more of a Matt Wenning kind of guy from that belief. I like a wide stance back squat. I don't like a narrow stance back squat. If I'm in a narrow stance, I'm in a front squat. So, I would rather not do that. You know, if, if, the, if the weight's going to be above my center of mass, then I'm going to do more of a front squat. If it's going to be, you know, um, so, and then if I can lower, like with a low bar back squat, I'm going to go with a nice wide stance, shoot my knees out, sit back and really try to get my glute, my posterior chain into it more. I, I think I'm a little different from that perspective because I know a lot of, of the strength coaches that still will squat with a shoulder width. I like to go even wider than that. And I do that with my athletes too. And so it's, it would be interesting to hear your guys' opinion on that. So most of, for most of our athletes that have, through assessment, have the mobility, range of motion, skill capability, we're trying to replicate the unit, what we call our universal athletic position, which is going to be really individ, relatively individualized based off anthropometrics. But it's a bit outside shoulder width apart. Yeah. And then uh, we'd like to see kind of like if you get in that ready linebacker stance, uh, and, and try to the, keep the knees. Yeah, the alignment or the landmark that we can provide a visual is the knee over the arch, the instep, yeah. as as our width with the toes pointing forward like we're skiing downhill. Mm -hmm. And what we would consider, yeah, like if you're standing on skis, we try to replicate that as much as we can in any sort of our bilateral hinging. Uh, yeah. And it's it's really to try to get that transfer in terms of position over into lateral speed and agility. Well, and yeah. uh, uh, Doc, this came from just an observation of mine. Um, my rookie year in the NFL, I ruptured my patellar tendon. Uh, yeah. My first NFL career start, I come out as a rookie. I'm starting uh, end of the first half. I ruptured my patellar tendon. So they took me in, um, said my career was over, took me into the hospital at night, stitched it back up, and I sat on IR for the rest of that year. Um, I was living in Philadelphia, had no friends, no family. You know, was here's this rookie that just gets hurt. And uh, all I did was I just would go lift weights, uh, in the morning, I'd lift weights in the afternoon, and then between that, I would just watch film. And I came to the conclusion that when I, when I turned the film on, the individual that maintained their technique longer tended to win every time. So, like, if I understood what good technique was, the offensive lineman set and the defensive lineman wasn't able to force him into a bad position with either speed, movement, you know, whatever it looked like, the longer that he could maintain position, the greater chance he had for winning. Same with the defense. So... Yeah. I got to this point where I was like, okay, if I can maintain posture and position longer than the next guy, I should be able to win. Uh, the problem was is they didn't clear me to go any, out on the field, so the only place that I could work on maintaining posture and position was in the weight room under load. 
So I got to the point where I was like, okay, hey, this is what my position looks like, whether it be in a bilateral staggered stance. And, I, and then I found different ways to load and try to challenge posture and position with the trunk and figure all this stuff out. And then, uh, because that's all I had to do. And then when I went out on the field, I took the same approach. All right, here's my technique. I know what the technique should look like. I know what the angles are going. This guy's in a three. I know where the quarterback's at. Now I have to just be able to maintain my posture and position through space uh, and then as that impact comes in, I need to be able to do everything I can to fight for that position, and I'll win. And I came back after they told me my career was over um, and started you know, 16 games that next year and basically went on to start for the rest of my NFL career. And, it, and so when I went into the weight room, everything I did, I constantly looked at, okay, hey, if I'm going to challenge posture and position and I can maintain, this is what it is. So when we built uh, this system and I sat down and said, hey, this is what I want to do, everything uh, – has to challenge posture position through through some form form of full range of motion movements, and so it doesn't matter what it is. That's the recipe that I found worked towards taking the weight room and applying it out onto the field. If you get the lift, but it looks like dog shit, and you didn't maintain posture and position. What I know to be efficient, then yeah. it was a fucking useful, and actually it was detrimental to us because you're creating a bad movement pattern. And then the minute that speed and all of a sudden you get emotion and a hundred thousand people screaming, now all of a sudden I go into my. Um, you know, emotional or, you know, that kind of like auto, uh, what is it, autonomic state where I'm just fucking on autopilot, all of a sudden I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to default to what I know to be, uh, that I was able to do, you know, the shittiest of techniques. So yeah. I wanted to be able to maintain that and basically make it automatic so that when it's 100 degrees and there's 100,000 people and it's screaming, I'm in the middle of a fist fight, my default is perfection. Yeah. That, you know, that brings up, could be a good thing to finish with is the three E's, right? So, but when Emily and I were, were first started to work together and we started talking about the foot, and we looked about, you know, she talked a lot about um, efficiency, right? So the way that I, and then I, I kind of thought about it for a while and I was like, hmm, you know, it's not as simple as efficiency because number one, and you just said this, you have to move effectively first. So the first E is effective. So you have to move effectively first. So that goes all the way back to us teaching, you know, middle school kids how to move effectively, right? Don't even worry about efficiency because you can have efficiency if you move like crap. Sure. You can just, right? So then once you move effective, then you move on to efficiency. Once you get efficient at effective movement, the next step and the final E and the most important E is Explosive. economy. Damn. Economy. So it's, so when we think about it, Exercise economy. Remember when we, VO2 was all over the place? Everybody talked about, oh, what's your VO2? Blah, 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 blah. Then we came up and we realized, hey, exercise economy is the number one thing. And if we were to look at some of the best CrossFit athletes, guess what? Their exercise economy is through the damn roof. Yeah. So economy is the final and the goal of what you want, which is what you just described. Yeah. You described exactly what that is, right? You, It's not efficiency. It's economy because you have efficient movement for the longest period of time that you can maintain it, that's exercise economy. That's our goal. Our goal should be exercise economy. That is the third E of the three E's. And then the other thing I noticed is uh, a lot of guys uh, tended to have ha uh, hip and back injuries, but yet they had no uh, rotation, like no transverse plane, and they got so big in the stomach. And more importantly, they were so weak in their trunks. Like, in, if, you know, when people think about – you know, uh, hey, I'm going to train my core, and I hate the fucking term core because it reminds me of apples, apples and pears, of course. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I use the word trunk because here in Texas they got yeah. these badass oak trees. 
um, it didn't come down to like uh, uh, basically you know extension and flexion. What I found was that the isometric contraction and the longest I could maintain my trunk stability under an isometric contraction became the yep. greatest determining factor for my ability to generate force. And Makes so, sense, doesn't it? Yeah. And so I got into all this different like, hey, how hard can I hold isometric contractions? You know, yep. whether it be in a GHD here, uh, whatever it looked like, and uh, all of a sudden, like I could fucking generate force like nobody else and you know and then also th- you know throwing a ton of med balls you know coming from a charlie francis gpp med ball deal yep. uh the strength and the explosiveness he developed with the med ball i thought was the fucking best of stuff especially for one of the brightest one of the brightest guys i've ever met was charlie francis yeah i mean that's that's the the camp so i met charlie when uh i was struggling with my patellar tendon rehab uh he hooked me up with the ems and the ems devices and his protocols actually when my, i couldn't get my quad to fire we did those. Yep. All of a sudden, that maximum uh, motor unit recruitment, I got my quad to fire. And so that's kind of how I got pieced into yeah, that Yeah, because he, he was doing that Russian stim training. He yeah. would get you where you would squat, and he'd hook you up, and then he'd shock the living daylights yeah. out of you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we did that. We did that one time. I had, like, a parent that was over the top, you know, and, they, and, their, and their kid was really a really good swimmer and developed into a really good swimmer. And she, um, she ended up, I think, getting second at NC2As. But um, – yeah, I remember he bought this high-end E-STEM unit, and they hooked me up, so I was the guinea pig. And when they shot that thing and turned it on, I was like, <clears throat> I mean, yep. it literally like like locked yep. me up. But that's what they would do, and they would they would put yep. the, the 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 you know the uh, electrodes on you, and then you'd squat. It'd be a weight probably 110 percent or 120 percent. They had it to a science, and then you'd go down, and then boom, they'd shock you, and you'd shoot out. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I used it in the prep, so it was 10 seconds on, 50 seconds off, and we'd do it for like between 10 and 16 rounds. And, uh, and then I would go in and I would lift, and I used it as a primer. And then I got to the point where like when that effect stopped working, then we would hook it up, and I would be 10 seconds of max reps, 50 yep. seconds rest. And then I would do that with like a lighter weight on the leg press or on a trap bar. And then yep. it got to the point where like, hey, uh, now that you're able to recruit motor units, I want you to use it later to clear up any motor or any motor units that we didn't recruit in the training. And then, yeah. uh, and it, dude, the, the machine was super ghetto. It looked like some dude made it in his fucking garage. Like I was afraid to get it wet because <laughs> I thought I was going to get electrocuted. And then uh, after 16 weeks, it worked. And I was like, now what? It doesn't work anymore. Get rid of it. Well, it sounds like your philosophy and my philosophy are pretty similar because I'm surprised we haven't met. I'm surprised we're not old friends. If, if, if the core, like, again, like when I said, when you think about a trunk, whatever you, cause the core really is what right below your crotch up to your neck. I fucking hate it. it like, I, so, like all, all these fucking assholes on the, you know, fitness, oh, talking about core. And I'm like, dude, apples have cores. Fucking pears have cores, and I don't ever want to be related to an apple and a pear. So come over the to the out. yeah, come over to the trunk side, Mike. That's it. Change your vernacular, buddy. Get that core. But brace, you know, but brace. So yeah. you got to brace because that's what you're trunk. saying. You were saying when I was doing the isometric stuff and everything, yeah. you were bracing, and that's what McGill talks about—that bracing, right? So yeah. you've got to brace. So a lot of times when I work with my players. I literally make them brace first. I don't do that stuff at the end. A lot of my GAs will make them do it at the end. I'm like, why? Yeah. Make them understand how to brace before they put a load, whatever the load may be. You need to understand how to brace. Right. So I'm sure when you get up against an athlete on the line and you get there and you, you would, the first time you'd hit them, you knew right from the first impact, if you had them or you didn't. And if they matched you, you were like, okay, I got to do something different or I got to hold on in my economy of effort. Otherwise I'm going backwards. So 
you got to be able to brace and integrate that and be able to move. I, I finally, when that light bulb went off for me was in BJJ. Mm. When I learned and understood that you have to be relaxed while choking somebody, not, you know, stiff and tense, because when you roll with new people, they're all stiff and tense and they're strong as get out. I mean, I roll with people over 300 pounds. Damn, are they heavy? But if you can outlast them and they gas out, they choke the same way that somebody, you know, that's 110 pounds. Sure. So a big part of that is just understanding and learning to be able to relax, know when to brace, know where you are in relation to your opponent and your center of mass is to their center of mass. But that also comes with like a little bit of relaxation having done it. So when you give somebody the opportunity, which I believe uh, opportunity is the greatest factor for athletic performance. Yeah. Um, like, you know, and the more you roll and the more you kind of understand, like a lot of people are in this kind of stress, they're in a situation, you know, they're here and, you know, and they're so wound up and they breathe, but that ability to stay kind of relaxed. I mean, I boxed from the time I was pretty young and that ability to, you know, stay fluid and then be able to snap yeah. your punch and create this rigid to go from like a, a you know, a smooth and a, a flexible to like a rigid and be able to yep. snap a punch out to knock a guy out. I mean, that's what you teach. And then yep. the other problem is if you're, you know, breathing so hard, like you're trying to, or lock everything down, like you're trying to like, you know, poop out a fucking, you know, watermelon. Yeah. Like a, a low fiber meal. Um, <laughs> Like that situation where you see guys get all locked down, uh, that was when people got knocked out because yeah. you couldn't take a punch. And so you had to create what I call task, or I'll steal it from Aunt Lowe, task-specific tension. You had to create enough tension to be able to move but not, you know, but not be so loose. And anytime I saw guys with back injuries, it was just because they were so loose and they got hit from the side and they weren't ready for it. So yeah. uh, I, well, I was And you very wonder lucky. if they didn't chain the anterior chain too much. Maybe their anterior chain was trained so much, but they didn't change, you know, because that's where I think, like, I can remember all the way back in high school when we would squat, we squatted with a narrow stance. Well, if you squatted with a narrow stance and everybody did leg extension, your quads would get huge, but your hamstrings never kept up. And that was one of the reasons why there were so many ACL injuries way back in the 80s and 70s. But, you know, maybe a lot of them, they didn't do it. They did all the anterior stuff, but really there wasn't a lot of posterior chain work. And maybe that was one of the reasons why they had the low back injuries too. It, it always felt like uh, um, when the guy's stomachs got real big, all of a sudden, like you'd see like kind of the sway back. And then when they would get tired because of the conditioning, all of a sudden dudes would get in the sway back. And that was when they always got hurt. So I, yeah. I, I kind of put this peg, this deal where I'm like, man, if I let myself get out of shape and I let my stomach get too big, I'm going to end up with a sway back, which is going to uh, end up you know, being an injury mechanism. And so, uh, like, and I don't know whether it's OCD or whatever it is, but I just kind of look for patterns and like, I just kind of constantly observing patterns and you start seeing things like, Hey, this guy got hurt and this is how this guy was moving and this and this. And then pretty soon you start kind of developing maybe some biases or some ideas or just some ideas on, Hey, like this is why this is happening. And now I'm going to fucking avoid it like the plague. So yeah. that's how I kind of worked. We got anything else, McQuilkin? Mike, I got one last question, and I hope yes, it's a sir. quick one. Yes, sir. The classes in which you teach now are very practical and hands-on. Can you give us a look behind the curtain for your plan sure. if this becomes more of a remote coaching style for your future yeah. classes? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, our program is really unique at the undergraduate and graduate level because we do have applied classes right? Like we literally have the methods of resistance training for our undergrads where we literally get them in there and we lift and we teach them traditional and non-traditional. So we teach them some of the pure motion, sandbag, Indian club, kettlebell, barrel training. We teach them all of that stuff, battling ropes, all of that. 
So we expose them to it and then we make them do it. So without doing it, now we have to do it through video, which sucks. Sure. It's not the, the, anytime anybody wants to say that online is better than in person. No, it's not, especially no. not in our field. In our field, you have to literally do it and you have to actually be there with them because then that's why I get paid. I get paid to literally coach them so I can say, look, you're not doing that right. Try this, do it this way. So, and then in a graduate program, it's the same way. We have a methods one and a methods two, and we're moving more to online, but those classes are hands-on. Lifting weights, doing the non-traditional implements, and then we have a, the methods of human performance too is a speed and agility. And the first part that we go into is barefoot. So I teach them how to do the EDFA barefoot analysis, which we've migrated into our own kind of, we've morphed it, and we teach them all about the barefoot assessment first before we ever teach them to sprint. So that way they can understand foot mechanics and then that way they're doing it the right way. So yeah, it's, it's been a challenge. Um, it's not why I got into teaching. I love teaching, but this online stuff is, it's not, it's not great. But it's the next best thing, I guess. Right? It is. It's all you can, you all you can do. Now we're going back. So, you know, we'll be in person in, in two weeks. So right. it'll be interesting to see what happens. As long as we don't use the term, the new normal. Every time I hear yeah. that, I want to like scream and pull my hair out. This is the new normal. Like uh, my kids are, my little girls are eight, and my boy's four, and uh, we get this whole like the changes in like you know how this and pulling my hair out. And I just like was I was reading this email like, hey, this is what our thing is. Remember, this is the new normal. Like I just wanted to like send yeah. this person a firebomb. It's not okay to have a new normal. No. And you know, and kids need to be around other kids. My wife's a teacher and a instructional coach, and you know developmentally it's it's bad for these kids right now it's they they need to be around other people that's how they develop their social skills that's how they they learn they learn from other kids that's that's the most effective way research even shows that so i'm, I'm not to say hey herd immunity i don't know I, this is one thing that i could say that and i think i'm a relatively intelligent individual but this one's got me puzzled like i yeah. really I, I i don't know what the hell to say i'm 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 kind of lost and i've not lost usually yeah, you're, uh, you're not alone man you're yeah alone. We, we've gotten into this i mean i talked to my mom about it yesterday and like i ended up reading a pretty interesting article that i posted up that came out of the uk where they talked about kids not having uh due to age not having a, a large enough viral load to really pass it and like they they don't really have any instances of kids passing it to kids or really you know younger kids passing it to adults because of viral load uh, that's really the first time I'd heard that. And I was like, man, maybe, yeah. you know, and then I actually ended up uh, asking a doc buddy of I, and he's like, oh yeah, no, there's a, a viral load exposure rate. I'm like, well then how come when my kids go to school, they come home and bring me home this flu? And he's like, uh, I don't know. And it doesn't affect right. those little, you know, peachy dishes. Right. So, it, yeah. Yeah. The, and the thing is though, if they're not exposed to those antigens over time, what's going to happen in two years, 10 years, if we're they're not exposed trouble. for this short period of time, are their immune systems going to be suppressed? Are we going to have a generation that actually lives shorter than longer because of this this you know, I know. blip in time? I am uh, I I am eager to look back 10, 20 years from now and like for those dots to be connected because just talking with guys like you and even like outside of strength and conditioning, we talked to a lot of a lot of smart folks and there's not a, like, it's unclear. And the only thing that will tell us is time, you know, and I, I'm right. curious how it's well, going to go down in the here. books. I mean, I, I would say we're probably pretty lucky. I mean, we have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where this office is, is on 16 acres. 
And, uh, you know, we live next door to 55 horses and there's a horse riding school and animals and, you know, kids. And like, uh, you know, we've been pretty well insulated. But like, you know, some of these other people that are stuck in their apartments like in, for yeah, three city months. City and urban know, type areas. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. We're, we're pretty lucky. Where uh, where is Georgia College? I mean, it's in Georgia, but. Milledgeville. It's the antebellum capital of Georgia. So it was this it was before Civil War capital. Huh, so it's okay. right in the it's right in the center of the state because Atlanta's really not the center of the state. It's a little bit more north, mm -hmm. but you know it, it's the current capital. But it, it's it's the antebellum capital. Okay. Oh, cool. cool. You said near uh, how far is that from Odom, Georgia? Do you know where Odom is? That's where Jaybird lives. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. Jaybird, shout out. Woo. Yeah. yeah. We 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 <laughs> taught a seminar in. Uh, Gwinnett County. Yeah. Uh, no, yes. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. In Gwinnett, and cool. then we drove to Odom. Yeah, Gwinnett County is where the Bodyplex is, the Grayson Club. So that's our other club up there. So Gwinnett's a pretty highly populated area, and it's a very popular area, too. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably about an hour and 15 minutes from us. Okay, cool. So. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your time, Doc. I enjoyed it, guys. It was fun. Yes, yeah, thank hope, you. hopefully we'll meet in person and uh, when this I whole thing's so. done. And thank you, Power Radio, awesome. for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Follow Dr. Mike Martoni on Twitter at Exercise Apologist. Reminder that September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. That means that it's the start of our annual Wade's Army campaign. So head to wadesarmy.org to join the fight against neuroblastoma. There you can start a team or make a donation as an individual and receive your official Wade's Army uniform to sport on Wade's Day. That's November 12th. Until next time, bye!